Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day? It is a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I am Phil. I'm here to introduce you to my co-host, Tom. Each week, Tom and I, we get together and we chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. And this week, like all the weeks this year, it's been crazy. It's been a doozy. Uh, the big news of the week right now is the Trump rally in Tulsa that ended up being a major embarrassment for Trump and his team. The event was touted multiple times through tweets and interviews, including by Trump himself, to be an event so large that over one million people would be attending. And the staff even set up an outdoor stage with Trump planned to make a second speech to the overside crowd that would be forced to wait outside. Out of the over 1 million predicted, the Tulsa Fire Department reported just under 6,200 people actually ended up attending, leaving the president in an auditorium with glaringly empty seats and the outside stage having to be shut down due to absolutely no one being out there. The Trump campaign cited fears of protesters and a fear-mongering media that kept the attendance down, but I think we can all agree that a couple hundred peaceful protesters being scary enough to keep 900 and 999,995 people away seems pretty unlikely or so yeah it's just that's not what happened the real reason have been attributed to a lack of enthusiasm in polls uh, health concerns due to the enclosed space and rising covid numbers as well as k-pop fans who united to create bogus requests for tickets inflating trump team predictions as well as throwing a wrench into the data collection goals of the campaign that they plan to use and uh, during that rally, during his time on the mic, Trump spent 35 minutes explaining away recent events like drinking water and uh, his ramp walking viral videos uh, before the, launching into attacks on enemies, all the while never really landing a punch on Joe Biden. He failed to address the thousands of deaths um, or thousands of protests that have gone on uh, in the streets following the death of George Floyd, uh, the racial upheaval that's taking place across the country, uh, or even to bother to hint at what his goals are for a second term. Saddest of all this week, as the number of deaths from COVID-19 currently sit at 122,283, Donald Trump, President of the United States, proudly bragged at that same event that he had encouraged his officials to slow down the testing. And to anyone who wants to write this off as him joking, Trump himself gave an interview this morning where he confirmed it was not a joke. All of this on top of the extremely shady administration firing of a New York prosecutor, Jeffrey Berman, who was investigating the Trump family connections and specifically looking into Rudy Giuliani. Trump has long let it be known that he's against oversight or transparency of any kind. And it was also announced just this evening that the House Judiciary Committee is preparing a formal subpoena for Attorney General William Barr in relation to his involvement in this modern day Saturday night massacre. John Bolton released a book that, reiter that reiterated Trump's incompetency, as well as new facts surrounding his encouragement to President Xi to go ahead and lock up the local Muslim groups and put them in concentration camps. And uh, in lighter news, a white bitch named Connie, who serves at the Baton Rouge uh, school board, got yelled at during, uh, for shopping during a school board meeting about addressing racism. It's a great video, and you should check it out. Um, let's see here what else I got on my list. All right, the WB just confirmed today that Michael Keaton is returning as Bruce Wayne to the DC Universe, making yet another move that we can talk about, but it absolutely baffles me and the clusterfuck of continuity going on with those properties. Um, an ass load of new music came out from big artists this week. The Academy officially announced that it's pushing back the Oscar ceremony and confirmed it's returning to 10 Best Picture nominees. Hamilton got a PG-13 rating, and Disney Plus is cutting a couple fucks out of it. And uh, yeah, there's just too much to cover in one episode. We'll dive into some of that, and uh, that's why some of these episodes are so damn long. I'm sorry. And with all that said, all of that, I'll start this week with the same question I ask him every week. Tom, how's that day? Michael Keaton is what? 
Yeah, they just announced in the new Flash movie uh, that with Ezra uh, returning as the Flash that it's going to feature him and uh, somebody as Batgirl, and Michael Keaton is returning as an old Bruce Wayne uh, in a Nick Fury uh, role, a Nick Fury esque you know mentor role. But that was just announced today. Is Robert Pattinson still but Batman? Up, I'm going to run this by you. Okay. Appar- apparently. The Robert, the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix, separate movie. Has nothing to do with any of this. Uh-huh. Uh, there's the Robert Pattinson movie, which apparently is open to its own trilogy, but is also apparently going to be completely separate from this other thing that's going on. And they're also, like we talked about previously, releasing the Snyder Cut on HBO Max next year with Batman being played by Ben Affleck. And now they're going and they're putting an old Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, but it's not, he's not playing an old version of Robert Pattinson. That's not like what they're doing. Um, Flash has a story that's like called Flashpoint where he's able to go through multiple universes. And some people have speculated that they're working on maybe trying to like merge these different universes at some point. But it's like, you also have Suicide Squad being rebooted once again, like with a new cast and like a completely different relation to each Batman. And I just like, like we're fans, we're hardcore nerds. We can probably keep up, but I like can't imagine what anyone in the outside is like making of any of this. Okay. Wait. So there are going to be concurrently. Well, maybe not concurrently, but I guess if you want to be super technical and include the Snyder cut of Batman versus Superman, because Ben Affleck as of right now is no longer Batman but they will be releasing a new cut of a film that is that will be five years old, right? So ne- next, next year, year yeah. in summer of 2021 on HBO. But now we will have a Robert Pattinson Batman possible trilogy released by Warner Brothers. And then the Flash movie, Flashpoint, uh, which is still the same universe as the Batman vs. Superman Justice League movies. Yeah, like Aquaman, Wonder, Wonder Woman, Woman, and, and all Flash. That. And I, I th- yeah, they're all part yeah. of the same universe. And that movie will have Michael Keaton as Batman. Yes. At the same time, they have a Joker movie, which is its own thing. I get that. And now they have, they came out with Suicide Squad in 2016. And got rid of Jared Leto as Joker, uh, so he's not coming back. Okay, but whoever replaces joker as far as we know is not going to be joaquin phoenix and it'll be someone else and then another character from that movie harley quinn played by margot robbie who now has her own movie which was an offshoot of the suicide squad is she going to be she is in the james gunn suicide squad so they're rebooting it with a new cast except for maybe margot robbie yeah, and it's called the suicide, the suicide squad. That's the only difference in the title. Suicide That's the squad only difference. They 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 added a the. Okay, so so Margot Robbie will return as Harley Quinn, but none of the other characters from the 2016 Suicide Squad will return, as far as we know. I'd have to look, but I believe not. I don't think like yeah, I don't think any of them are coming back. Like I don't know if Cyborg's coming back, you know, from the Justice League. Like I don't know anything. I'm just like. Oh, you guys have uh, so many timelines that are going on right now and like so many different reboots of things that you guys started two years ago. Like I don't and especially like when you consider I know this sounds crazy, but like if they had had a separate of the Joaquin, let's say they liked the Jared Leto thing, you know, like let's say they liked that version or who, whatever actor did that uh-huh. and they were able to u- to use that in the Harley Quinn movie. 
you know, then I guarantee like more people would have gone to see the Harley Quinn movie because they would have already had a relationship with Joker and that world. But because they like can't use that, they're like cutting that part off because of, you know, these reboots there constantly. And it's just so confusing. And I just I'm baffled by it. Like as much as I like the idea of like Michael Keaton as an old Bruce Wayne, like that's cool. But I'm just like, as the the studio executive in me is like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Yeah. Plus, the Harley Quinn reboot came out months, a few months after the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, and in the Harley Quinn movie, they're referencing the J Man constantly. So he's a. But it's not. Yeah. He's a but character. Not the one that was just. Yeah, he's a character yeah. we don't see. He's just mentioned a lot. He's not the most recent Joker we've seen on screen, nor is he the Joker that was on screen with Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn four years ago because they are going to recast him eventually. Right. Okay. That all makes perfect sense to me. Cyborg, man. I totally forgot about Cyborg. <laughs> yeah. I thought they were, weren't they going to make a Cyborg movie? Yeah, dude, they go look back in like an article in 2014. They announced so many movies that did not get <laughs> that did not get made. That's crazy. Um, that is fascinating. Wow. I yeah, I didn't even hear about that. So, it, yeah, that just dropped like a couple hours ago. How's that day? I am reeling from this Michael Keaton news. That's how that's how my day is going, Phil. Um, beyond that, I, I guess I'm I'm okay. Uh, you know, watched uh we we both watched a movie this week, so I I should mention. Uh, we said we were going to do Spike Lee Part 2. We uh, Yes, I have that note to, we, to mention. Yeah, this. we put that on pause um, to talk about these new releases. Um, but we will get back to Spike. But yeah, we have a lot of music to discuss and some Jedi Apatow to discuss. Which is exciting. It was, yeah, yeah. It was a, um overwhelming week of music releases that excited us. On top of the fact that Spike's movies are like often over two hours long. And we're talking about some documentaries that... Um, are four hours long, and I, I we just needed some more time to kind of like properly revisit. Them. Yeah, I didn't finish when the levees broke. I'm sorry, guys, but I will. I will. We're gonna do it. We're still doing Spike. We haven't abandoned Spike. And I got. I watched s- Four Little Girls just yesterday. Um, I gotta say, with uh, a few more days of of hindsight and reflection upon me, I'm liking The Five Bloods more and more with each passing day. I, oh yeah, yeah. I, I watched a great. Um, there's a good. Netflix made it. It's on YouTube. It's like the making of the poster. And it's Spike Lee like going and meeting this guy who made the posters for the Black Panthers yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. It, it was fascinating. It's just like that stuff made me like the movie even more. He has four really great posters on his on Spike Lee's website uh, that he's signed all of them. And one of them is that poster that you mentioned. Uh, but there are some other really great ones. There's one I love, which is... Uh, a black fist, a black power symbol fist inside a helmet, like in the where the head of, yeah, of a yeah. black soldier should be. Instead, it's the black power fist uh, with our war is not Vietnam. It's great. Um, speaking of great things we saw, uh, Netflix, Netflix Films Twitter account um, uh, passed over their account to this Vietnamese-born uh, film critic the other day. And everyone should check it out. I retweeted it. Phil gives out all of our social info at the end of the episode, so you can find it there. Um, but she she went on a, just a thread about the detail from that movie to Five Bloods and how accurate and painstakingly researched the movie was uh, in terms of historical landmarks in Vietnam. It, it actually was shot in Vietnam. How it gives a lot of respect and pays tribute to the Vietnamese side of that war. 
that so many Hollywood Vietnam War movies don't, you know, on top of it being a movie about black soldiers uh, from the Vietnam War, which is something we really get to see. It was really cool to see uh, a movie praised from a Vietnamese critic who said, yeah, this movie actually, Spike got it right. Um, it was really cool yeah, to see. I, People should check that out. Yeah, I saw that. It's great. It's the Netflix film account on Twitter. Um, I was thinking about... Um, that stuff, and I, I got into the biggest Twitter argument this week. I, and I I don't know how it happened. I was pretty angry on Twitter this week, but some uh, somebody tweeted out from IndieWire about um, how Spike Lee had to fight for the 16 millimeter footage to like use stock footage, and they wouldn't. Uh, the the Netflix really pushed back on him, and he had a 45 million dollar budget. And somebody tweeted out like, "Hey, how come Martin Scorsese, you know, his, his and." gets 150 or 200 million dollars to go make his but you guys are making an equivalent an equivalently acclaimed filmmakers have to beg to do like cheaper options like 16 millimeter like why why are you fighting him on that like just let him go do that shit and i i some guy was like how dare you imply that spike lee is the equivalent of martin scorsese and like that's your takeaway from that guy come on man yeah and like and i and I, it was the most liked tweet I think I've ever had. I just said, and his, I think his quote was like, in what universe is Spike Lee the equivalent of Martin Scorsese? And my response was, in this one, where Martin Scorsese would tell you the exact same thing. And, and Hell I, yeah, I got, Phil. I got, I got like 700 likes out of that, and I was very shocked. Ooh, it was weird. I was like, Philly went viral. Um, yeah, very <laughs> viral. But um, uh, it was just like, well, and then a couple of people just started like, you know, being like, well, he's just not like he just he's just not. And I just was like, in my head, it became like even more like at first I was just like, yeah, they're both great filmmakers who have been working forever. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, they're both New York filmmakers who have who went to NYU, both teach at NYU and both have made documentaries and music videos and commercials and blockbuster movies and independent movies and have made movies about their own personal culture and like Martin Scorsese has produced movies like Clockers with uh, Spike Lee and Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I'm just like, the more I thought about it, the more parallels I found. And I was just like, I've never thought of him as like the, you know, the black version of Martin Scorsese or anything. But it, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, they are absolutely equals. And, Both won um, Academy Awards and got standing ovations for winning an Oscar decades later than they should have. Yeah, and Mar- and do the right things in the fucking Library of Congress and on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time, and he has uh, an honorary uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Like, to, to imply that Spike Lee is somehow some kind of, like, low-bar filmmaker, especially compared to, like, Martin Scorsese, who we love, but, like, give me a fucking break. And it just made me, like, stuff like that was making me angrier this week than I normally would let it well but, good yeah, for you cool. because you're absolutely right and obviously you know we all have our favorites and maybe you prefer spike over marty or marty over spike but to, to even intimate that what is like an a-level filmmaker and what is not is insane that's absolutely yeah insane. did you well did you see the giancarlo esposito quote about the original cast of the five bloods uh no i didn't it was originally the original cast in the in the planning was supposed to be a bigger budget, and it was going to be Giancarlo Esposito, Denzel Washington, uh, John Denzel's son, uh, John Washington, and from Samuel Black, L. Jackson from Black from Black Clan, yeah. and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. So it would have been Denzel in the Paul role, and his son in the uh, 
I, I'm blanking on his son's name, but in the son role. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, like, how does that, you know, how does that get by? Like, uh, if you're a studio, I can't believe you would look at that and be like, oh, that's not a hit. That's a no for me, dog, to quote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who's that guy from American Idol? Um, you know what? I got to say, kind of glad that didn't happen. Really? I mean, Del Rolando's amazing. Yeah, so I'm happy I, for I, like, uh, I like the idea of it being more... Uh, more of the character actors who really got to shine because they get so many, they get so few moments to do that. And honestly, especially, I thought all four of those leads, those Vietnam vets, were great. But man, Delroy Lindo's performance is one of the best I have seen in a very long time. I mean, he's yeah. my obvious. I've seen so few films this year by comparison that I normally do. We're, I know we're only halfway through the year or just about halfway through the year. But for me, he is so clearly the the best acting performance I've seen this year. He's my front runner. I hope he remains that way. If he ends up winning, the, if Delroy Lindo wins the Best Actor Oscar in 2021, that would make me so goddamn happy. And I can't imagine anyone else in that role. He's so perfect in that movie. I have, I've as someone who has watched a shitload of this year's movies, there's no one close to him. Good, like I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, there's. The like, I mean, there's some other ones like that wouldn't even qualify. Right, like, yeah. in ter- if I'm if I'm like trying to round out the nominees, I might be like, oh yeah, Hugh Jackman is very good in Bad Education, or you have your Ben Affleck in The Way Back. You like, you have good performances, but like, yeah, like the, no, no one's comparing to Delroy Lindo right now. No, he's a beast he, in that he, movie. He is. He's so good. Um, I've I've thought about that movie a lot. But uh, how how's your day and how's your week been, Phil? How are things going on your side of Los Angeles? Uh, it's been, you know, another week of quarantine. Um, I was telling you off mic, I've been doing a lot of work on my movie stuff. Um, trying to get that ready. We're, uh, sending it to slam dance. So I'm putting that on the mic. So, um, you'll know if I failed or not several months from now. Uh, It's not, it's Uh, not failing if you didn't get it in. Well, you know, but also like the slam dance is just a goal because, I realized there'd been a couple post-production things I was hoping to get help from, from other people and um, some things I'd put off, but I was just like, no, we need to like finish those in the next couple weeks. And slam dance was a nice goal to meet. So I've spent the week um, really like I did. A, I've made picture lock on the movie. Finally, I just sent it off and I sent it off to be colored and I have a friend doing the score right now. And, um, I have been like trying to cut a new trailer for it and like just trying to be very proactive. And, uh, I cut a new reel together for work, like applying for jobs. So like, I've been pretty like, you know, active with work, but I feel it's also just like, I also feel like I've done nothing. I don't know. It's a weird mix of like, I feel like I'm laying around all day, but I have, you know, I've gotten stuff done this week. Well, it's hard when obviously with the quarantine and, you know, not, not having work right now anyway, even if you had a job, you may not even be working right now. Um, you know, obviously you just moved to LA and then the the world shut down as you were applying for work. So that's tough and shitty, but it's also like, you know, you're working on your film and you're doing a lot of stuff online and on your computer, but you don't really have anything tangible to show for it work-wise. Like you don't have a day of being in an office right now to make you feel right, like you've, yeah, yeah. you've done something. So I get that. Yeah, but I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I feel pretty good. Like even things that I've put off, like the the closing credits of the movie, I'm like, oh god, I I just need to sit down and make a list of everyone that worked on this fucking movie. Yeah, man, that's like, such a pain in the ass. That that's the kind of like nitty gritty stuff I'm like that I've put off that I'm like this past week finally finding the energy to kind of like okay, time to time to get this done. You put it off long enough. You sat down so, and said, "Do the damn thing." 
yes, uh, do the work, Don. Do the work. Exactly. <laughs> hey, I was uh, randomly watching some Mad Men. It was on. Oh, well, it, they're they're replaying it on like the audience channel or something. Say hi to my best friends when you see. It them was one time. of those late at night, like they were playing five episodes from one to five a.m. or something like that, or four episodes, and I randomly watched like an episode and a half from season five, I think. Like it was half That's, on. I wasn't really paying attention, but naturally yeah. I see, got hooked. Yeah, season five is Don's freshly married to Megan. Yeah, and happy yeah, it was season era. five. It was right around. It was the the Chicago nurse murders episode, and then it follows that up. Ooh. One of the greatest stretches in the show's history. That episode, <laughs> and then the it has like a horror episode, then it's sci fi episode with Ken's uh, Ken's like career side career as a story writer. Yeah, um, and then that uh, playing with the timeline episode where Roger does acid and. Uh, Don gets into a huge it's, fight with Megan. It's so great. One of the great. That's that episode's one of the greatest. Uh, Far away places. Far away I places. believe it's the name. Yep. Yeah, that, I remember. I was. I actually remember the exact spot I was sitting when that episode aired because my jaw was on the fucking floor. Yeah, and then right after that is at the Codfish Ball, I believe. Jesus. Yeah. What a perfect show. What a run. Perfect what, show. Yeah, but according to Indie Wired, uh, you know, lost some steam in those final seasons and doesn't even deserve to be on the top 100 or whatever of the decade. Oh, so man, that was infuriating. We we got to do our Mad Men podcast. Fuck it. We just got to do it. It's it's worth it. Maybe somehow we'll figure out a way to, like, minimize it into this. I don't know, like a, a section on three episodes. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. We'll, we'll I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if we've ever mentioned, but we have we have nine full episodes in the can. And then, yeah, I don't think you've ever. They're edited and everything. I, know. I don't know that you've ever heard them. One day I'll like go and pull them up and be like, "What do we talk about?" With- we were going episode by episode. You guys have no idea. We we did our research. We were discussing philosophy. It was oh, it was great. If and then it, we realized it was too much work. <laughs> uh, no, it was actually we ended up stopping because of the <laughs> Matthew Weiner stuff. Remember? Oh yeah, that uh, no, I remember we we got took me it was be- in a minor way. It, uh, yeah, well, we were slowing down. It was becoming work, and then I think that happened, and we were kind of like, eh, yeah. maybe we don't want to like work too hard on this right now. Yeah. So, if any show deserves the work, though, it's Mad Men. Yeah. Um, all right. I mean, that's my week. Anything else you wanted to dive into, like before we uh, started our film review? No, nothing's happened. I mean, I, I as always, I enjoy your intro stuff. I did want to say it was so, it was so great uh, seeing the Trump campaign try to justify that paltry audience. I mean, I think more than anything, it just goes to show people could say all the shit they want to say. Everyone with a brain knows that it's not smart to go to a crowded arena right now. It's just yeah. not smart. And it's insane exactly. that our president is pushing for it. And then, like you said, he, he talks about wanting to slow down testing. And even if that was a joke, which it obviously wasn't, and like you said, he doubled down on it, not being a joke. Even if that was a joke, what an insane joke for the the leader of our country to make. That is so whatever. We talk every week about yeah. how insane Trump yeah. is. Uh, Called it the Kung Flu. The Kung um, Flu, Jesus Christ. And then I love that you said he spent almost half an hour talking about his latest controversies, which included drinking water and walking. 
Yeah, no, he. <laughs> I, I believe it's literally the 35 minute mark uh, of the video. He's like, all right, all right, let's get to the speech that was prepared. <laughs> he it's literally insane. like, he's like, I just, I just had to get that stuff off my chest. Let's get down to business. And he talks and like, about like the, the line media cutting out of the walking down the ramp video before he gains momentum and runs down the ramp at the very end. <laughs> and, so but weirdly, if you listen to his story, all he does is confirm everything that the video yes. shows. Yes. It's not like he's saying the video was fake. He's just saying like. I knew I was going to look dumb and I, I was scared to slip. So I, you know, took my time. It was slippery. Like, yeah. There was no ramp. I knew I would fall. It's like, yeah, we know guy. We saw, yeah, like, we yeah. saw the and video he's like guy. Saying it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's not what we're, we're laughing at, man. <laughs> oh God. The lack of self-awareness is mind blowing. But, um, and the, there's been a lot of great videos of him getting off the, the, uh, off the uh, air. I'm like the, the helicopter version of air force one. Right. Um, that just cracks me up that people are adding soundtracks too. They've been, they've all been funny. Um, oh, uh, one other video thing to mention. So, Ansel, another thing that happened in Hollywood, Ansel Lingort got uh, called out. Oh, yeah, he, he got me too. Um, as did Chris D'Elia for apparently grooming teenage girls. And there's this video going around of him uh, learning about a teacher who I think she had sex with one of her high school students or something. And the way they they found out and alerted the authorities was the mom of the high school boy found out found the teacher's photo she was sending on Snapchat. And you see Crystalia's face when he finds out that Snapchat photos can be saved because obviously anything can be saved on a phone. And you just see his face melt and realize I'm in trouble. And then like oh, he's, he's a like, week wait, wait, later, wait. Hold on, hold on, comes guys. out that he's sending dick pics to or, to teenagers and like shit like that. It's uh, if your uh, Schadenfreude is feeling particularly uh, virile one day, you can watch it and really enjoy his misery. But um, yeah, a couple you, more celebrities, creepy guys being creepy guys. Yeah, um, two video more creepy guys. Um, one, I got really pissed off watching that clip of Joe Rogan this week laughing about uh, um, women at uh, comedy clubs being sexually abused yeah, to like Jesus get spots Christ. on the set. Um, did you see that video? Uh, no, I didn't. It's, uh, I'm gonna have to pull it up. It's one of his buddies, um, who's like this fat fucking Italian guy with a big ass belly. Can't see his own dick type guy. Um, and, uh, I'm gonna have to fucking pull up Joe. Joey Diaz is his name. Oh, I know Joey uh, Diaz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, or yeah, Joey Diaz is basically saying like, Oh my god, man! You should see it. Like girls would want to come up, and I'd be like, "You're gonna have to suck my dick if you want that stage time, man." And I'd fucking, I'd blow fucking loads in their mouth, and then they'd finally get twenty minutes, you know. And like this one chick, man, she was beautiful when she came there, beautiful, but she fucking, she tore up. Hollywood tore her up, and she fucking came to me and was like, "You ruined me," and like I just fucking, they're, they're laughing at her. He's like, "I fucking just threw cum at her and shit," and they're like, and it's Joe Rogan just cracking up and laughing and clapping along, and he, I'm like, dude, this is a guy talking about forcing women. To, have, to like give him fellatio so that for stage time like that to other female comedians like this is a fucking crime and these fucking white bros are just laughing about it and clapping and having a great time and it just like was so disgusting and just fuck those guys fuck joe rogan like if i i know he's the number one podcaster in the world but fuck joe rogan if you like joe rogan he's fucking stupid he really he's not is as smart as he's not he's like I said in some, I also, that was my other thing. I was mad on Twitter this week. I, I, I'm not normally tweeting a lot, but I was just like, this guy is like, he's a moron's 
version of a fucking intellectual and he's a teenager's a macho aggro teenager's version of a of a man like he's just he's ruining a generation of men as far as i'm concerned with this like bullshit masculinity that he exudes i just like i hate it all i hate joe Rogan. he's the human equivalent of like every poster freshman year college guys have of those two girls kissing in white underwear like the pink floyd uh album artwork on girls butts sitting outside of a pool he's like he's the most broy 17 year old philosopher dumbass uh, i don't know if he really frustrates either i did see a joe rogan clip of uh he had bill burr on his podcast i assume to promote great the, yeah the, great clip. The movie we're about to talk about and he tries to bring up the mask wearing stuff and you could tell joe rogan's trying to bait him and bill burr just shuts him down and says look i'm not going to listen to you a non-medical expert tell me a non-medical expert why we don't need to wear masks the cdc says wear masks all the scientists and all the experts say wear masks that's helping don't be selfish i'm gonna wear a mask and joe rogan just laughs it off like oh you don't want to talk about it huh dude you're not an expert either and why are you why would you promote that ideology anyway it's so dumb and it's weird man. It, well what go ahead. yeah and the other just that bill burr's like the, the two elements of the video he's just like one i'm not gonna sit here talking about this with you uh a non a non-medical expert while you're sitting there chomping on a fucking cigar in front of an american flag yes and and and, like we're spitting bullshit and like the part that really like just fucking irritated me is that that moment where he's kind of like goading him on like come on let's let's get into it come on and you can tell i'm like dude you're just pushing this because you want a, a a conversation that's controversial or you want to like say something ridiculous and i just like it's the worst kind of or get your guest to say something that'll go yeah or something like that yeah and he's just like dude i want to talk about that and he's like come on that's that's broken's whole shtick and what you were saying earlier about the conversation with joey diaz and him there's this whole subset this whole maybe not even a subset maybe it's you know much bigger uh faction faction than I realize or people realize I don't know but there's this definitely this culture this like chauvinistic culture and comedy scenes and it's especially big in New York it seems um you have so many comedians like that who are just so openly misogynistic and they've it's been like that for years decades and it's I feel like so much of it is passed off as shtick and part of their act and their their characteristics of like that culture like it's funny and it's almost you could laugh it off because maybe it's it's too obviously misogynistic to be real or something i wonder if like that's how they think they're getting away with it and i feel like they're finally being called out for that type of shit and bill burr is one of these guys who i know he has a lot of friends in that world um but i'm curious how he's gonna how he's gonna react to this if at all because he's one of those guys who's like he so toes the line of that like big dumb male persona but he's clearly so much more advanced than them you know like yeah he's a better comedian he's aware he has so much more self-awareness he's not like that um but yeah there's this big thing this this thing in new york comedy especially it's super strange i saw a lot of people calling out uh male comedians being dicks to women 
online this week. I didn't I didn't actually see that clip, so I didn't know it was specifically about that. But yeah, it's it's a weird thing, man. It's I mean, it sucks. It just sucks. All right. Well, speaking of Bill Burr, he's one of my favorite parts of the movie that we're going to review yeah. this week. So, uh, with no further ado, I think we're good on talking about the week. Let's dive into our review of The King of Staten Island. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. <laughs> you can't focus on Scott anymore, honey. He's 24 years old, Marjorie. Let that fucking bird fly, please. Don't worry, Mom. I know your daughter got smart and went to college and abandoned us. But I'm still here. I'm going to be here forever. The latest film from comedy godfather Judd Apatow stars comedy enigma Pete Davidson in his first starring role. The film, according to IMDb, is as follows. Scott, played by Davidson, has been a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died when Scott was young. He spends his days smoking weed and dreaming of being a tattoo artist until events force him to grapple with his grief and take his first steps towards life. Toward, for his first steps forward in life. The film uh, it features strong supporting performances from the ageless, perfect goddess of women known as Marissa Tomei, as well as Bill Burr, who we were just talking about, in a role that may surprise a lot of people who only know him from his stand-up or talk show appearances. Joe Rogan could never give this performance that Bill Burr gives in this movie. Uh, it's Apatow's first fiction film in over five years, and after the 2015 Amy Schumer starring Trainwreck, he helped develop and produce TV shows like Love for Netflix and Girls for HBO. He produced movies like The Big Sick. And uh, he directed a four-hour HBO documentary about his friend and idol Gary Shandling following Shandling's passing. Uh, this new one finds him back on familiar ground. It features an on-the-rise comedic personality being given their first starring vehicle. And this film, once again, focuses on as everything from 40-Year-Old Virgin knocked up uh, to his latest work have on an immature adult uh, with a group of goofy best friends who is finally forced by circumstances to grow up and embrace the next step of their life. How much any of this works for someone I think is going to depend on their relationship to Davidson's persona and their willingness to go with the flow of the recurring issues that have plagued almost every single Apatow-involved production, namely an extended running time, too many supporting subplots and characters, and a fairly predictable plot. Um, I'd also note that this film was supposed to be released in theaters, but they instead decided to send it to On Demand, where it cost $20 just to rent, uh, which is theoretically more than a single ticket at a movie theater, especially if you're an AMC member. But that price will drop in the following weeks, and I'm sure it will be more available on other services in the weeks to come. So, with all that said, I had some feelings about it. We'll dive into those. But first, Tom, tell me, what'd you think of the new Apatow movie, and uh, what'd you, what do you think of Davidson in general as well? Yeah, I'm going to start with Davidson before I get into the movie. Um, I was just, uh, I have a... Uh, you know, like most of us do, I'm sure, at this point in our lives, uh, you know, you have your friends who you text regularly, like Phil and I are daily texters. I have, a, you know, we all have a few friends like that, I hope. I have one uh, with two close friends from back east, uh, me and two other buddies. And I was asking them about Pete Davidson because I said I was watching this movie for this week's podcast. And they both said like, oh, yeah, we hate that guy. And I've always been a defender of Pete Davidson, man. I, I've I've liked him ever since I first saw him on SNL a few years ago. He seems to garner so much hate from people. I think because uh, I think people just wonder like what his deal is. You know, you called him a comedy enigma, which I think is appropriate. You know, he yeah. he's uh, 
he's a guy who got suddenly famous at a very young age on SNL, but he doesn't really do sketches. Um, he kind of just does miniature versions of stand-up material on Weekend Update for the most part. That seems to be his general purpose on that show. And um, yeah, but I've always liked him. I just I find him so refreshingly honest and uh, I like that he makes fun of himself. I like that uh, he's this weird mix of a guy who if you just saw him, you would think he was... Um, what he calls himself out on for being like kind of like a cool punk, you know, like a, yeah, a fellow I... punk stoner dude. And he totally is that. But he, to me, he's always seemed like such a sweetheart and I find him super charming and relatable. I've, I've always been a huge Pete Davidson fan, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I certainly do not hate him. I, I'm more of the camp of like, I just don't know what to make of him yet. Yeah. Um, to me, there's like an undeniable sad puppy dog kind of charisma that he has that I really think, works in parts of this movie and i think he's good in certain sections of this movie um and i think we all know someone like him he feels a lot um for me he reminds me of joey or someone that we've talked about on this mic he's like um your hilarious best friend that you like when you talk to him he cracks you up and like he strikes me as more than that like around all these comedians he's like this group of comedians best friend who cracks them all up and he seems to be more the of a personality than he is this like the way like a Jerry Seinfeld is always constructing jokes. That's just not, I don't think Pete Davidson's uh, what he's interested in doing. And to me, he's just one of those guys who's kind of naturally funny. Yeah. And, I, and I like, I like him in interviews or like, if you watch his hot ones, I think his hot ones is hilarious. Yeah, I agree. Um, but like, I'm curious, I am curious how he's going to translate that into like a long career. And I'm curious if he can do any other role outside of being Pete Davidson, because I think that's kind of what he ran into on SNL. Like you said, they're like, we can't really put you in any skits because you can't do anything else, but just be yourself. Right. And I think, uh, it's interesting that he's playing off Bill Burr in this, sh- in this movie, a guy who, you know, made his mark as a stand-up. Now, Bill Burr is obviously a, an incredibly hardworking guy who has, I think, um, over the past many years, uh, transitioned from a working, successful comedian to one of the absolute best stand-ups in, in the game right now. I mean, I think he's... He's an A-list stand-up comic at this point, and he's just been grinding it out for so long. Bill Burr also has his own podcast, which is literally, it's a very unique podcast in that, for the most part, it is just him talking to the microphone. It is like the rantings of a crazy man. Um, <laughs> I have not listened to that. It's a great, um, it's a great podcast. I go through phases. It's been around for a while too. I mean, he's one of the he's one of the old dogs of podcasting, but it's literally just him talking into the mic he's talking to the audience as opposed to a what the fuck where a comedian brings in a guest in the interview he's 95 percent of the time he's just talking and it's just him um no he also has a netflix show he does a really great netflix show called f is for family and he has several great stand-up specials that are on a lot of which are on netflix but they're very similar to me in the sense that uh i think what makes bill burr so great beyond being a super hard worker who is you know, he's treated stand-up like a profession, and he's gotten better and better and better at it. But uh, they're just, both of them are such strong personalities, and I think they have really interesting brains. I just think they both, uh, I think they're they're very introspective guys, uh, which is a great asset for a comedian. Uh, I th- and from what I, what I read is that Davidson is huge, as a huge admirer of Burr, and like Apatow wanted to play into that, that kind of like, 
ad that deep admiration that he had for Bill Burr. He wanted that element to be there in the movie. Yeah, that's not surprising at all because to be Pete's Pete's real strength is his his charisma and his personality. That's that's what he is. Is he's a force of personality, and I think uh, what makes me like him is I don't necessarily need. He doesn't need to prove anything to me, so I can I can enjoy him just for what he is and what he presents. And I think what he what he gives people, what he's good at, is just being that personality, being himself, using his brain to to give us his own insight, which I think is very unique and and uh, and fresh. And um, yeah, I find it rewarding to to be a fan of him. But uh, so this movie in particular, well, actually, before I get into it. Do you want to say anything more about your thoughts on Davidson or should I get into my thoughts on the movie? No, just that, like I said, like for me, as you're just saying, he is more of a personality more than a versatile actor. And this film was built to literally be, you know, by Apatow and it was co-written by Davidson about his life. Yeah, it's very autobiographical. His his dad was a firefighter who died 9-11. They chose to cut that out and make him just a regular firefighter in this movie. But, you know, it's very much based on he's it's set in Staten Island. He lives in his mom's basement, which is where Pete Davidson currently resides. He's a stoner, uh, which is what Pete Davidson stone, is yeah. in real life. He, he is playing Pete Davidson in this movie. Yeah, it was built sure. basically the way Trainwreck was built to be a Amy Schumer vehicle and to highlight her best attributes. This was designed to, like, show you the best of Pete Davidson yeah. and what he can do. So as a as a movie, and particularly as a Judd Apatow directed movie, you mentioned a couple things you're going to get from a Judd Apatow movie. And the, the elephant in the room at this point with the Judd Apatow movie is, I feel like everyone who's a fan of uh, movies beyond like, oh, that looks fun, I'll go see it. If you know who Judd Apatow is and what movies he's made, if you know new ones coming out, the first thing you're going to do is look at the running time, right? Yeah, yeah. So I saw it was 137 minutes, and I was like, Jesus Christ, Judd. Why? This is a coming of age dramedy. Why is this a why is this almost two hours and twenty minutes long? There's no need. And after seeing the movie, I stand by that. It's too long. Um, but there's, in my opinion, there's another major drawback to Judd Apatow movies. Uh, something that became much a much more noticeable flaw a few movies into his career, which is he would have all of uh, the supporting roles be filled out by super funny comedians, a lot of stand-up comedians or improv comedians, and he would just let them go. He would let them improvise jokes, and whoever was the funniest would get in the movie. He's even said that in interviews. He's like, I would just roll the tape and say, whoever says the funniest comeback or insult or whatever, you're going you're gonna to make the cut. And so all of his movies eventually ended up being every character sounded the same, their comedy was the same, all these guys, like a group of friends, were say like one's a fucking investment banker genius, and the other guy's a a dumbass like stoner dropout guy. They would have the same type of wit, and you're like, wait, what? This is not a movie anymore. These are your comedy friends being your comedy friends. So this movie, even though it suffers the same faults of the long running time, I thought. I don't know if he's if he was aware of that criticism and actively fought against it, but instead. The, the cast is filled with a lot of lesser-known actors and also a lot of genuine actors like Steve Buscemi or like Marissa Tomei, which I was so grateful for. And that made the movie so much more enjoyable to me. 
I don't know if that's something you've been aware of in his past movies and noticed, or if you even agree or disagree, or if that's not a problem for you in his past movies. I don't know. But that was an issue I've always had with him, and I was so pleasantly surprised to see that that really wasn't an issue here. Um, I think I, I, I certainly know exactly what you mean. Uh, I think what happened, it's one of those things where when a director first does a thing and it seems different and new and cool, um, I remember very clearly that uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin came out the same summer as Wedding Crashers. And for me, I remember Wedding Crashers was, I think, the bigger, much bigger hit. And people, that was still very much that run of Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. They were It was that kind of run of movies. And I just remember when the 40-Year-Old Virgin came out, it was like, holy shit. Like, we just haven't, like, seen this kind of comedy. These are new faces. It felt very fresh and kind of, like, weird in ways that those other movies never would. Like, the you know, it ends with the fucking musical from Hair. Um, you know, like, there would be these weird touches where I remember it felt kind of, at the time, very revolutionary. And then Knocked Up comes out, and that seems like this coronation. But I even have a very clear memory um, you and I went to see Knocked Up together. I don't know if you remember that, but um, we went to see Knocked Up at Times Square. And I remember going up to the screen with Jake and pushing the buttons to get the tickets. And Jake was like, this movie's two and a half hours. And I was like, yeah. He's like, I thought it was like a rom-com or something. I was like, I guess it's a fucking epic. And that was like, I very clearly remember thinking the first time, like, oh, this is going to be a long one. That's weird. And then subsequently after that, he has had that kind of looseness through all of them. And I agree that like, for me, it's not so much the problem that they all sound the same. I know exactly what you mean by that, but the thing that has stood out to me more is the shagginess, where I, I'm both torn because I feel like it's great. It's like, look, he's trying, he's in, in a way giving up narrative momentum and saying like, what's more important to me is to give these actors I like a spotlight for a few minutes. Even if it's just like, if it you know makes the movie run long, so be it. And I there's a part of me that wants to respect that, but then there's this other part of me that's like, I wish you'd tighten it up, you know, like it's, I'm kind of torn where it's like, I like the intention behind it sometimes, but I also feel like it can be very indulgent. And at this point in your career, it'd be nice to at least show that you're aware of it enough to like not do it at least once. Yeah. There has to be a middle ground there. Like in this movie, there's one scene in particular. I remember as I was watching it thinking this entire scene does not need to exist. It's when Bill Burr, uh, his character, he's, he's also a firefighter like Pete Davids, Pete Davidson's uh, dead father in the movie. He starts dating uh, Pete's mother, played by Marissa Tomei, and basically they sit uh, Davidson's character, whose name is Scott, down and say, you need to start pulling your weight around the house a little bit. That includes taking my two kids to school, Bill Burr's two kids to school. The next scene is Pete Davidson going to the house to pick the kids up to walk them to school. And there's like a three-minute scene with Bill Burr's ex-wife played by Pamela Adlon, where she kind of starts growing up like, are you a weirdo? Are you not? And then he takes the kids and is walking them away from the house. And it's three minutes long. And I remember thinking, just cut to him walking the kids down the street. Like we've gone through him struggling and fighting back on the idea of like, I don't want to walk the kids with the characters who actually matter in the movie. His like new potential father figure, Bill Burr and his mother, Marissa Tomei. We've already seen the conflict. Just cut to him walking the kids down the street. Yeah, and like that's kind of my my biggest gripes generally, and especially I I, I don't want to do this. I, I even on past episodes, I've kind of been like, man, I really don't want to be the guy who's just, especially as someone who wants to be a writer and wants to write films. Like, it, I think it 
can be easy for me to get into that space of like, well, like if you gave me the draft, here's what I would have done with it, you know, type thing when it's like, well, review the movie that it is and don't like try and change it. But there is this part of me that's just like, as I, I sent you a text earlier, the third act of this movie revolves around, or the second half of this movie, whatever you want to say, revolves around, and you can see all of this in the trailer. I, I will also side note, the trailer spoils this entire movie. Um, but it's also not anyway. really... A, a, I, it's not a plot yeah, movie. Spoiler it's not, culture yeah, spoiler culture has become a, very sensitive. There are some movies yeah, that yeah. you don't want to spoil. That, I mean, come on. This is The King of Staten Island. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, I'd, I'd be so, reticent to even say, like, spoiler warning. Obviously, we're going to talk about the movie openly, so be but, wary of that. But come on, guys. It's like a, yeah, a coming-of-age story. Yeah, and in the, in the third act, he spends a good portion of that at the firehouse with Bill Burr, who is a firefighter, and he kind of has to confront, like, a lot of the, the feelings he was having about his dead fire, fire firefighter father who he'd put off for a long time. And I that was when I'm watching the movie and I'm like this is clearly the this is the movie. Yes. Why did why did you spend an hour and a half getting him here? Like why did you like if any it's those things of like the movie has a I think the Bill Burr introduction scene is very funny, but it's this whole thing about Pete tattooing this kid and and a scene that actually made me really not like Pete Davidson's character. I was like this is almost a step too far for me. Um and but then like I'm, there's a part of me that's just like, why don't you just start the movie with his mom starting to date a firefighter? Like, there, you spent 30 minutes setting up them starting to date when, like, clearly the conflict is that he's a firefighter. It's like, if that's all that really matters, just start the movie there. The, you could chop off the first 30 minutes or something of this movie. Or well, so, you know, and that type of stuff is the writer in me kind of is like, there, there's a clear restructuring that I think could make this flow a lot easier and focus in. Because I think ultimately, while there is great side stuff, I think a lot of the emotional stuff, especially the ending doesn't land because it's been so unfocused okay well i would i wouldn't go that far because i so i think this stuff about his movies being too long and discussing like obvious places that uh could be trimmed or cut completely are worthwhile because this is such a it's like a career-long thing with judd apatow that being said i liked this movie and i like most of his movies um and i one thing that i really like about his movies is that he lets us sit with characters for a long time. So many movies are so plot momentum based. And like you were saying earlier, that he lets, he kind of lets plot momentum take a back seat to. And what I was saying was there ha that there's, he needs to find a balance. He puts plot momentum aside to let us sit with characters, which I like, but he does it too much to let performances and actors all get their moment in the sun which he uh he does a little too much so there needs to be a middle ground there that he needs to find where his movies just can't be two hours and 20 minutes like an hour 55 you could get away with i'll live with that 220 it's just too long for this type of movie but i, I wouldn't cut that whole that i would do what you said personally but there are definitely ways to tighten all of that to make that that's what that, that's all i don't mean cut it whole cloth yeah like just by like the point bill it. burr yeah. asks marissa to out for coffee it shouldn't happen at minute 38 it should happen at like minute 28 you know um yeah that's all but that that said i was a big fan of this movie i this is i like this way more than train wreck i like this more than this is 40 i like this uh more than funny people i think um I definitely don't like, I like this, I don't know. The thing is, I don't like those other movies. 
Uh, um, but funny people, I, I I think the last hour of funny people is a hot mess, but the first two hours are amazing. <laughs> the first two hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I, have, I So as a Pete Davidson fan, I, I enjoyed watching him. And I think, uh, like I was saying, I think this movie really scaled back the let the comedians be funny and tried to focus on creating real characters. And I credit... Um, I credit the fact that Pete Davidson co-wrote the script with Judd. Uh, there was one other writer whose name I'm blanking on. Uh, but th- since this is obviously so autobiographical for Pete Davidson's life, I mean, like you said, Staten Island kid with a dead firefighter, firefighter father, Jesus. Um, I I get the impression, and I get the impression over the course of his whole career that for whatever flaws Judd may have as a filmmaker he is he seems to be such a champion of young comics and young vo- young new voices and comedic talent he seems to be a guy who really wants to groom and elevate all of these people like you go back to you mentioned trainwreck this movie obviously and you can even go back to freaks and geeks with guys like seth rogan um he's a guy who really seems to he got that experience when he was much younger uh, with guys like Gary Shandling, and he seems really focused on wanting to pay it forward, like with Lena Dunham and Girls, with Pete Holmes and Crashing, with Love, with Paul Russ, like all all of these guys. He seems to be a genuine comedy fan. And yeah, and I might I think that's where that like wanting to give everyone this room yeah, comes from. And it could be his own. So I don't want. Bit. Yeah, but not yeah, not to enough to own, ruin the yeah. movies for me. Um, and I found this. I found this story. I thought it was very sweet. You mentioned. I agree. It takes too long to get to Pete uh, staying at the fire, um, staying at the firehouse with Bill Burr's character. But once he got there, man, I was kind of in love with all of that stuff. I thought that was great. Yeah, that's I mean, that was sort of my frustration. Like I kind of I was in the middle of the movie where I just felt like especially his friend characters. And there's we, we don't have to go into everything, but there's a burglary in this movie that I was just like, what the fuck are yeah, we doing? What here? is this? What's happening? Um, right now? And there's a, the, the ending with like action Bronson. I was just like, this is the, this is what you came up with. Uh, you know, like that type of stuff. I was just very much not a fan of. And the, again, um, that's another sequence where I get, the, I get why that scene exists. I get why it ended up the way it ended up. I get why, you know, it led us to where it needed to go. I get all of it. But what talk about a scene that is just too long? The whole thing from the time Action Bronson shows up to the time they get to the hospital and all the characters are reunited, it, it was twice as long as it needed to be. It just yeah, I was just kind of long. like this is how you did this. And there were moments like when he's watching the fire, and of course it's the most explosive fire ever, and explosions in the sky are playing on the soundtrack. And I was like, all right, calm it down, Judd. I don't know, man. Like, that worked yeah. for me because I was sitting there thinking, I, I thought the same thing, like, holy shit, this is an intense fire. But I was just, I was putting myself in Pete Davidson's shoes, trying to actually sit there and watch it and not like run away or something. And I don't know, fires in particular and firefighters, have always really got me. I've, I have such an insane amount of respect for that profession, like everyone does. Obviously, I'm not saying anything special, but that I know it was so ham-fisted and cheesy, and the music was the most obvious choice ever. But it really, it really worked for me, man. Uh, I just let it so, yeah. wash over me, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. this is sad. Yeah. Next week we'll be reviewing Ladder Forty Nine. <laughs> We're going to be checking that out and see how that one worked for Tom or World Trade Center with the Cage of the Angels. Dude, Jesus shows up with a bottle of Dasani um, in that movie. <laughs> but, uh, like, 
So th- well, I, I will say, by the way, just to touch, sorry, to go back to what you were talking about earlier, just while I'm thinking yeah. about it, I will, I will say what you're saying about the supporting cast, like uh, Belle Powley is in this movie as his love interest, and um, she's amazing in Mario Heller's Diary of a Teenage Girl. Yeah, she, um, I thought she was I, great in this movie, too. I really liked her. Yeah, and uh, she, I thought she was great in this movie. She's one of, the, like, like you said, I much rather see Judd casting people like that because my frustration with train wreck was I think I like Amy Schumer more than I like, like just generally, I, I don't know. I, it's not a big percentage, but I think I, at the time I probably would have said I liked Amy Schumer more than I like Pete Davidson currently, not for any, not strongly, but I was more excited for that. And as well as like Bill Hader just really stole my heart in that movie. Yeah. And, um, but that movie in particular was surrounded by, I think the worst version of his let's set this at a magazine and have, s- 10 supporting characters that don't actually have anything to do with it. And we're going to have a whole scene with like just nothing but celebrity cameos. He's really bad with celebrity cameos. Oh, yeah. And that was, this movie's lacking in those. And I was very grateful for that, that he kind of pulled on back on that. Cause like funny people is ridiculous about it. At least in funny people, it makes more yeah, sense. Yeah. It's but, in that world. Yeah. Train wreck though is like, he's, you know, he's a surgeon for, or he's uh athletic, tra- uh, whatever for an athletic doctor for LeBron James. And, so the movie's just full of like there's he gets he has a round table like therapy session with like all these celebrities and I'm just like get the fuck out of here like this is silly and I think like like this is 40 is I think the most up his ass Judd Apatow went I'm not sure like I, that I'd, I'd like to revisit that maybe when I'm 40 but right now I just like I'm like Judd this movie this is a movie only for you right well now. I mean like, it was I think I think that was pretty. I don't think he was yeah. trying to hide that. that that's clearly the most autobiographical movie he's ever made right. Yeah, and I think this is uh, not to be that guy, but I just I, I kind of just feel like you know what, man, I don't really care about your fucking problems right now. No, it's true. <laughs> I think I think that's totally valid, and I think that uh, that's a movie that thank God he made it when he did because if he had waited six years, uh, people would be like, well, why would we care about this movie? He got it just in time. <laughs> this is yeah. forty. This is forty. No one would care in twenty twenty about uh, middle aged upper class white people problems in a movie. Well, uh, and just all right. If if you, unless there's a lot more you wanted to say about um, Staten Island, is there anything you wanted to say specifically before we kind of talk more broadly just about Apatow and kind of other projects he's been involved in? Um, yeah, there was very quickly. Um, so I will say, no we'll say overall, what I liked about this movie is that it just felt. It, you know, you mentioned funny people and uh, trade wreck with Bill Hader being a, a traitor to LeBron James. Funny people being about the world of stand up. I like that this movie was a lot more grounded. We we haven't seen Judd Apatow work in like the lower class world uh, with his characters, really. Not since Knocked Up, um, when you know all of his when it was basically like a, a dorm room outside of college. Um, and I like that. I like that we were dealing with like a guy who deals drugs out of his basement with to like townies and shit like that. I like that we were in that world, and I thought. Um, I thought maybe because of that, maybe because it's a world that Judd isn't as familiar with as in previous movies, I feel like maybe he he didn't let his tendencies take over too much. And I'm just guessing here, but maybe he deferred a little bit. And that's why the movie felt more real and more lived in than a lot of the movies we've seen from him in the past. And I think that ended up working to its advantage really well. Uh, beyond that, I, I wanted to highlight Steve Buscemi's character. He only, he's only in a couple scenes, 
but he's real great. life firefighter Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he's great. Especially he has one great scene towards the end of the movie at a bar uh, when he takes Bill Burr out, or when he takes uh, Scott Pete Davidson's character out along with Bill everyone. Burr out. Yeah, and it's a the bunch whole of firefighters. Like, it's the whole crew. Yeah, it's the heart of the movie. Um, and Steve Buscemi's a standout, and he has been for decades. People got to love him. And like you were saying, uh, Bill Burr gives a surprisingly good performance. I mean, I'm not that surprised. He's had as a handful of roles over the years, but most of them have been, you know, purely comedic. But he's... He's actually really good in The Mandalorian this year, too. I don't know if you ever watched that. I haven't. I've only seen the yeah. first episode. I didn't know he was he's, in He's in episode like eight or seven or something like that, and he, it's it's pretty good. He's pretty He's fun. solid, man. He's a, he's a really smart, talented guy. And obviously, you know, people probably know him best from Breaking Bad if you don't know him from his comedy. But... Yeah, he was good. I, I thought Pete was good. I, I really enjoyed this movie. It has its Judd Apatow flaws, but not as glaring as other Judd Apatow movies. That would kind of be my takeaway. Yeah, I kind of, I was actually, since we talked about Spike Lee last week, I was trying to kind of think of it in the way that I approach Spike Lee movies, where I'm like, look, I walk into a Spike Lee movie knowing he's going to bite off more than maybe any movie can handle. Like, there's just going to be so much there. It might not all work, but I'm going to forgive him because I admire his ambition so much. And we talked about that with The Five Bloods. Like, there's, you know, ideas that are just kind of touched on and maybe not developed as much as it could be. Maybe the movie's too long. Other movies of his might be too long or whatever you want to say about, like, some of his movies, like, plot coherence or um, tone consistency is not Spike Lee's strength. And But, like, Spike's worked long enough that it's just kind of like, look, that's just who is who he is and what his films are. And you just kind of have to accept that at this point, like expecting anything different at this point is silly on your part as a viewer. If you're if you're a active viewer like we are. Right. And so so I tried to take that approach into Apatow. I was like, look, this movie's going to be long. It's, it's going to be shaggy. And I think if you understand that going in, uh, you can kind of forgive it a little bit more than a, a, some, maybe an average viewer. Like a shell at some point I paused the movie and to go to the bathroom and she and we were both like there's 45 more minutes of this movie jesus fucking christ like and but uh, and thankfully the last 45 minutes were the best chunk of the movie like i think and i so for me there was a lot of like there's a lot in there that i really do like i like a lot of individual performances i liked marissa tomei and if i have any complaints it's that like you wish or for me i wish that he would have spent less time on like action bronson and his friends and some of that like long scene setting up and I wish I would have gotten more with uh, his sister's relationship because I really liked that dynamic and I really liked Marissa Tomei I would have liked to see her feelings as she's like changing the house like the changing the decorations of the house and stuff like I want or more with her and Bill Burr or like all that stuff like there I that was the part of the movie that I really responded to and the fact that I just I, I kind of didn't care about a lot of the stuff around that so that kind of held me back from loving it and I also will say I found the ending I think it's trying for like a Lady Bird esque kind of ending, but I just didn't think it landed. That's what that's what it reminded me of too was a Lady Bird, specifically I the just, final shot. Yeah, and I just I I kind of was just like I don't think this movie's earned that in any way, shape, or form. But that um, but I I like Pete Davidson enough that I'm just like I like this movie, and like you said, I think it's probably better than This Is Forty, and probably a little bit better than Trainwreck, or at least more interesting. Um, I think Trainwreck is a great reversal of rom-coms, and I think it's playing with tropes of like people working at, you know, fashion mag or magazine writers or shit. Like, I think it's trying to be self-aware, but I think that movie has too many of the pitfalls compared to this one, which is at least I think falls into the same pitfalls, but is a little bit more interesting about it. 
And so I'm, I'm still pretty in the middle. I would recommend it, especially if you like Pete Davidson. I, I definitely think it's worth checking out. Um, I think it has its flaws and it's loose and shaggy, but you know, you could do a lot worse. I, I would also recommend it. Um, I think if you like Apatow's early films, you know, keep, keep chugging along with him. He doesn't make too many. And uh, especially if you like Trainwreck, you better like this movie because this movie is better than Trainwreck. I'll say that much. All right. Um, so what do you want to talk about next? I, I have my top five Apatow as a director and my top five, if we were to change <laughs> his that. His top five out of six movies he's made? Yeah, and his top five if we include his like work as a producer. Yeah, so I, first off, um, I just wanted to, I so I wrote I wrote down all of his producing credits, not counting like executive producer where he was like a money man or a financialist contributor or like someone who just kind of wanted to help out, right? Like actual creative producing credits. Yeah. And yeah. for whatever shit we give Judd Apatow's ticks as a director, goddamn, yeah, this dude. guy is, you called him a comedy godfather. And in terms of Hollywood feature filmmaking and television into a lot of, uh, in a big way, but specifically in movies over the past 25 years, he is, he has to be considered one of the great figures of Hollywood comedies. So, yeah. He worked on Larry Sanders show. He went from there to do stuff with so, the cable guy. Yeah, let, I'm, I'm going to yeah, give you the list. It. Okay. Let's do it. So starting yeah. with in 1994, he was a cult consulting producer, not a successful show, but critically acclaimed cult show, the critic, right? He goes from there Love it. to, and again, these are all producers, so creative producing credits. The Cable Guy in 96, The Larry Sanders Show as a consulting producer. Obviously, he created Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. Anchorman in 2004, Talladega Nights in 2006, Superbad and Walk Hard in 2007, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Drillbit Taylor, Step Brothers, and Pineapple Express in, all in 2008. Year One in 2009, Get Him to the Greek, 2010, Bridesmaids, 2011, Wanderlust and the Five-Year Engagement in 2012, Begin Again in 2013, as well as Anchorman 2 in 2013, Pee-wee's Big Holiday and Popstar in 2016, The Big Sick in 2017, The TV Show Girls, Juliet Naked, The TV Shows Crashing and Love, uh, The Gary Goldman, critically acclaimed HBO series The Great Depression, and then he also has writing credits as well as producing or executive producing credits on a childhood favorite of mine, Heavyweights from 95, Celtic Pride from 96, the Jim Carrey movie Fun with Dick and Jane, your favorite late career Adam Sandler movie, You Don't Mess with the Zohan, he's a writer on. And then he also has tons of TV writing credits on Love, Crashing Girls, Undeclared, Freaks and Geeks, Larry Sanders, and the Ben Stiller Project. So this guy major comedy stuff he is around it in some way it's insane yeah he for the yeah and for those of you keeping track that basically means since the mid 90s he's been involved with the movements of ben stiller jim carrey will ferrell um the lonely island seth rogan um some of the most acclaimed television shows of all time like bridesmaids like he is behind near not every but nearly every or comedy voice that has been a major voice in the last two decades. And all, all types of comedies, too. I mean, you talk about, like, the height of absurd comedy, you got Anchorman there. The height of incredibly tightly written comedy, you have Superbad. Uh, the, like, 
the movie that ushered in like the new girl power era of Hollywood comedy. I hate to, you know, like just uh, summarize it in that it's way. It's more than that. It's, it's, it's a great obviously movie much it's more right. than that, yeah. but Bridesmaids. Yeah. Uh, Oscar nominated script, The Big Sick. I mean, he's around so much. Like you said, Lonely Island. He was involved with Pop Star. He's he's done so much. Worked with Adam Sandler. He's done. He's in every corner. I mean, I was trying to think of like what major comedy movement of the past twenty five years has he really not been involved in? And the only thing I can think of is Edgar Wright, which obviously is based in London, based in England. So that's not yeah. those aren't American productions. And besides that, there's really nothing. Like he's I would he's, I would say the Todd Phillips is about the only like other like his hangover old school like due date type of like run that he was on as a comedy true, big guy. True, but obviously I, honestly if you're That's about it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I mean uh, are you really missing out by avoiding Todd Phillips, let's be real. Yeah, but you know, that was I was saying that Todd yeah. Phillips has a reputation of being a dick, but surprise, surprise. Anyway, uh, but yeah, he's been he's been around so much, and uh, I I could very quickly uh, make a top five list of his uh, those producing credits that I just highlighted for sure. Obviously, as a director, that would be very easy to do because I could just rank them one through six. You mentioned very briefly that his his other big directing credit, other than his six uh, features is the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which for those who haven't seen it, he came out with Between Trainwreck and The King of Staten Island uh, about his dear, dear friend, Gary Shandling, one of my favorite comedy people of all time. Um, it, I think you were one of the first people to recommend The Larry Sanders Show to me. Possibly. I've been, yeah, I was, I was a fan of that before I really understood why it was so funny back in the 90s. I really liked that movie or that TV show. And um, The Zen Diaries is a great two-part documentary. You can watch it on HBO's apps, anywhere on HBO. Um, that's all about Gary Shandling's life. It's really, really good. I highly recommend people check it out. He also came out with a, a book, like basically an accompanying book all about Gary Shandling's life that uh, Judd Apatow wrote and edited. All right. Yeah. So I have my list of those projects and I cheated a little bit. Okay. Cause my number, cause two, my number five and my number two are like both two movies that I think are heavily connected. Wait. So is so, this one overall list or one is a producer and one is a director? This is my, like as a producer. Okay, cool. As a producer, my top five, I have num- at number five, a tie. I can't choose. Don't make me choose. Between Anchorman and Step Brothers, the Adam McKay like twin one-two punch Will Ferrell movies that I think are by far the two funniest movies those guys made together. I'm not a Talladega Nights guy, but like those two movies, incredible. Stand the test time, stand the test time, whatever. Like I think they're great. I I know it makes me a college bro. I don't really care. Um, number four, uh, Bridesmaids. I the more Shell has it on pretty semi regularly and. God damn, it's funny. Like Rose Byrne is, is I think the silent, like star stealth, like fucking missile of that movie. She's in, she's so funny. Um, number three, I have Super Bad. I just think it's a perfect thing of what that is. It's classic, you know, yeah. like classic. I, I I know some people think it's aged poorly, but I disagree. I think it's um, one of the few movies about like teen about f- teen male friendship and like male love. You know, like. You know, it's, it's it's a it's an interesting movie that I think maybe doesn't get enough credit 
as it should yeah. compared to like I, I think it doesn't get I think it gets credit as a funny movie, which it obviously should, but I don't think it gets enough credit as being such a genuinely good movie. It's genuinely a yeah. very good movie. And also I it's clearly become obviously there has been many like get to the party one night, you know, one night of partying type movies before been many before, but I think super bad became the template for a new generation of that. Yeah. I think we've seen it become very influential. So my number two is a tie um, between my, the two major ones that I think I, I know you're going to agree, but I think these are like the secret best things that are in the Apatow like production thing, maybe like, or at least my personal favorites. And that is forgetting Sarah Marshall and the five year engagement. Yeah. I knew that when you said tie, I knew that was coming. Yeah. The Jason Siegel or Seagal movies, however you want to say them, that he co-wrote those movies, um, and stars in them. Apatow produces them. And weirdly, they both suffer from the, what we were talking about is the Apatow problems of being too long, having too many supporting characters, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, I the both of those I think forgetting Sarah Marshall is perhaps the best romantic comedy that's been made in the last decade. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look. Um, but it's up there for me. And the I'll, I'll answer for you. It is. It is the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 2008, so it was last decade. But yeah, it's it's up there for like the last two decades. One of the best rom coms. Um, and five year engagement, same thing. I think both of you or both of us are on the same page. With like with the Van Morrison soundtrack, oh, yeah. and like it's it's a long movie, but I like that it's. And as someone who's right, it's a reference for me right now, because the thing that I love about it is that it's a romance about a couple who have been together for a while and it's not a meet cute. I, I like a romance that it's about like, Hey, how do we keep our like love alive? Like long term for the rest of our lives. Cause that's the real challenge of like being together, not finding someone attractive and like starting dating. That's the easy part. And I, so I respond to it there and the challenges of being in a long-term relationship and the sacrifices that you have to make for another person and your own career goals and what that means and changing with another person and still, and I just, yeah, I think by the time, sorry for the spoilers, a few years late, by the time they're walking down the aisle at the end of the movie, I'm just like, I'm in tears because I love that movie. And they earned earned that wedding. They they earn that wedding. And if you look at the, uh, and that movie is fucking stacked. It is Jason Siegel, Emily Blunt, um, Kevin Hart, Mindy Kaling, Allison Brie, Chris Pratt. I'd have to think, but like the, every scene, I was just like, I can't believe how many people are in this fucking movie. Like people who like Mindy Kaling and Kevin Hart wouldn't have touched those roles two years later. And all right, and my number one, I think, uh, I think it's the obvious one that for it should be at least for everyone. I think the most perfect best thing he's ever been involved in is Freaks and Geeks. Oh, okay. I was looking at the list and wondering what you were going to pick, but I was only thinking of the movies. No, I think overall in terms of like finding talent, finding that middle ground of being hilarious, but poignant and true and honest. Like, I think it's the everything he wanted to do as a, it's a masterpiece. A filmmaker. It's a flat it's a, out it's masterpiece. A ma- yeah. It's a one season masterpiece. It's not available on streaming because of music rights. So you have to have the physical copy of it if you want to watch it, um, which I'll be honest, this week has sent me searching and co- and for co- I, 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 I thought I was going to see you this week. So I actually was like, I think Tom owns the DVDs. I, I do. Have to borrow them I do. I will I'll um, make sure you get them this week. Well, I also like it. There's like, it's like 40 bucks for the Blu-ray set. I might just order that. I don't know. Um, oh, I do. Yeah. Mine, uh, I believe are DVDs, but I mean, the quality is yes. still very good. Um, yeah. And it's totally and worth said, though. 
Yeah, and because Apatow said there's there's a big music rights issue with the show in terms of getting the clearance for streaming. That's why it's not available right now. So guys, the the music in that show is insane. Like every episode is either Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or The Who. It's it's awesome. Big rush. Big rush. It, lots of rush. And uh, yeah, it's just for me, it's the most perfect thing he ever made. Like. It free from the flaws of whatever we're talking about. That's the, I think the crown jewel of like kind of encompasses everything it, as a career. And it's cool and, to see something like Freaks and Geeks where we see the the beginning of the careers of guys like Seth Rogen and uh, James Franco, James Franco and, and uh, Jason Siegel, guys who he later you know and, produced. And you know Seth Rogen, he's Judd App. You know it's very publicly known. Rogen said. Judd was always the guy who's who told me I could lead my own movie, like I could be a star in Hollywood, and I never believed it. And all of those guys have gone on to star in their own movies, and all of those guys have started movies that Judd has either produced or directed. It's really cool. And it, and I'll also note they all co-wrote those movies because Seth Rogen has also said that um, Apis Hall was the one who was like, "You have to write. Like, if you want to make stuff that you want to make, like, you have to write it." So that is what encouraged. Seth Rogen to go continue to pursue Superbad, and because um, he was 13 when they wrote the first draft, but they were like 17 and 18 when they were like doing Freaks and Geeks, and like so he kept working on it, and that was because of Judd, and uh, that's how we ended up with this w- very wide. If you look at Seth Rogen, he's written a ton of fucking comedies. Most of the movies he stars in, he probably co-wrote. Yeah, Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg are one of the best comedy writing teams working right now. I think. Yeah, and same with Jason Siegel. He has said, like, Judd pulled me aside, and he's like, because he, he literally was like, I was working on that puppet musical. And he's like, <laughs> you know, that's in the mo- in the movie. Yeah. He, like, wanted to write, and Judd was the one who kind of was, like, shelter, uh, kind of, as you know, guided him. as like, this is how you will make work that matters to you. You shouldn't be relying on other people to get you work. Like, create your own stuff. And that's been his guy he's been undeniable as a guiding force especially in terms of just like i think lena dunham has said the same thing about about girls and everything he's been a a shepherd for other people and has put people first even at the detriment of his own movies momentum so like it's hard to fault the guy for that no he's uh obviously his career is very admirable it's funny that you mentioned the writing uh advice he gave to those guys and then you look at super bad which in my opinion uh, is one of the best comedy scripts of the century or forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I think is one of the great comedy scripts we've seen in a while. And then you look like we were just talking about with Apatow's own films and how he will give in to improvisation and letting actors have their moments in the sun, which derails the overall strength of the movie itself. I, I feel like he needs to take his own advice there. Ironically. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, do you have a Do you have a list? Do you have I do. Uh, five um, So I I did a list of the five. Uh, just producing only. We'll we'll do the directing next. I separate. I didn't uh, select any TV shows. So really quickly, um, I just want to say if people haven't seen the critic, which is a criminally underseen show, check out the critic, the animated show. John Lovitz as a movie critic. It's so so funny. Um, in terms of his TV shows. You said it, Freaks and Geeks, which is his product, his baby, is a flat-out masterpiece. Watch that, and then since you will be clamoring for more, you might as well go watch Undeclared. It's not quite as good, but it's still very enjoyable. Um, I also want to highlight uh, the TV show Love he did 
on, or not that he did, but that he produced, that Paul Rust co-created with his wife, uh, Leslie Arfin, I believe are the two creators. Um, I did not watch it. Love is a great, you, you would really enjoy that show, Phil. I highly love it. I think you would. I really do. Um, I don't want to spoil a big, big reason why that show is so good. It's three seasons long and it's really, uh, season one is really fantastic. Season two is still very strong. And then season three, the show kind of takes a minor turn. It doesn't like totally reinvent itself, but it starts uh, handling its characters in a very particular way, which isn't like a major seismic shift, but is so interesting and unique. And it, it turned that show into one that I really was enjoying and I thought was a really smart, sweet romantic comedy into something much greater than that. Um, I'll just say that, and I highly recommend it. I think Paul Rust is a really brilliant comic mind i really really like him a lot and that show is fantastic so i think people should watch love as well so my top five i would say number five would be pineapple express um james franco should have been nominated for an oscar for that i stand by that position number four i'm gonna go with anchorman uh, it's just a classic. I mean, it is what it is. Who cares if it's a cliche opinion? It's, that movie's still so funny. <laughs> Number three, gonna get a little weird. Go with the cable guy. Not not weird at all. I think people that we I think we were of that weird age of kids that weren't supposed to like it, but we did. And I, boy, did I. Um, it was on it was on HBO so many times, like uh, as well. Like that's what I will say about that. One. It's like, such a dark movie too. It's really dark. It, I didn't read it. I don't think I registered as a kid how dark it was. Like I just, I, I, but it, I don't know. I wish I understood what I felt watching that movie as a kid, but I remember watching it so frequently and like looking back on it now, I'm like, yeah, like he's playing a fucking psycho, but I really enjoyed that movie even as a kid. It, like I, yeah. And I truly believe this. So Jim Carrey obviously was the biggest comedic actor in the world for a while there in the nineties. And then he had a kind of a, a transformation into a genuinely, great actor who deserved to be taken seriously with Truman Show, Man on the Moon, Eternal Sunshine. I think it was the cable guy that really showed he had that ability in him. I mean, obviously we've seen it over and over again, so it should stop surprising people. Would really great comedic actors just turn out to be really great actors because doing comedy well is super hard to do. Um, but I think cable guy shows a lot of range and it's a really great movie. And my top two from his producing credits, they're 1A and 1B. I don't know what order I want to put them in, but we've already discussed them both super bad and forgetting Sarah Marshall are the the, the the two classics, I think, of his entire career. They would probably be... Those those two I would put above anything he's directed as well, not to spoil or I agree. let down, but yeah, I, I think those are, those are arguably the two best comedies of the century, in my opinion. At least in terms of like comedies that are that are genuinely that are more than just funny you know like my favorite comedy comedies the funniest movies you know i love hot rod and mcgruber um but in terms of like genuine movies uh because mcgruber is so insane I, i can't really call it like a movie with any depth but it's the funniest movie of the century but in terms of the best comedies of the century i think those would be my picks honestly yeah Maybe Shaun of the Dead as well. I don't know. Um, director, do you want me to go first since you went first last time? 
Yeah, yeah, I don't care. Go ahead. All right, I'm just going to rank all six, because why not? I mean, I'll separate the Zen Diaries of Gary Shanley, because it's a doc, but like I said, it's a it's a high recommend. Uh, last place, I would put Trainwreck. I really just don't think it's that great. It's fine. It's watchable. It has its moments. Like you said, Bill Hader's really fun in it, but I think that was the peak of Judd Apatow's flaws really grating on me. And there's a... I was going to bring this up earlier in the Staten Island convo when you were talking specifically about Trainwreck. There's a scene early on when um, uh, John Cena takes her on a date, Amy Schumer on a date, and they're at a movie theater. And they get into a fight with a guy because they won't stop talking. And it's just some dude in the back of the theater. Like, you never see this character again. And it ends up being a scene that goes on way too long. And this random guy in the back of the theater is suddenly as witty and funny as every other comedy guy you see in any Judd Apatow movie, but, like, speaks the same way as every other character in a Judd Apatow movie up till that point. And that was when I'm like, dude, you're losing the plot here. Like, literally and figuratively, you got to raid this shit in. This is getting absolutely obnoxious. So that that's my clear number six. Um, number five... So the, the everything besides Trainwreck, I am a fan of overall. So... Even though this is all the way down at number five, I would say overall I like it. I don't love it, but this is 40 would be number five for me. Number four, uh, I would put Funny People. A, a really interesting movie. One of his most interesting movies. It just doesn't totally work, unfortunately. But I think it's genuinely worth watching. And it has moments of greatness and moments that are not great. Uh, number three, I would put The King of Staten Island. Number two... These movies are both so great, I think. But uh, number two, I would have to go Knocked Up. And number one, The Four-Year-Old Virgin. So basically, he was he was bringing back diminishing returns until The King of Staten Island. That was a combo breaker. So good job. He readied the ship a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm basically the same. And that I I think we have one major flip, and that is I, I have this funny people, and this is 40 as my three and four. Um Funny People is my number three. Uh, Knocked Up is my number two. Forty Year Old Virgin is my number one. Um, Funny People, like I said earlier, I think the first—it's a two and a half hour movie, and the third act is a mess. I, I, the movie is basically about this relationship between Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler, and in the third act, it becomes about this love triangle with Eric Bana and Leslie Mann, and I think all that stuff is kind of a mess, and I—I I really wish that stuff worked because the movie—that's that part of the movie literally takes place in a separate location from all the previous parts of the rest of the movie. So it's like these two characters leave the previous movie to like go into this other thing and then return later. Cause the 20 subplots that we had going on before got completely dropped. And that, that part of the movie doesn't work for me at all. But, but, but the first hour and a half, I think it's maybe one of the best, if not top two, three performances Adam Sandler's ever given, like without a doubt, no question. That, yeah he's incredible in the movie and he's playing basically the mean version of a real life Adam Sandler, like an Adam Sandler without family who knows he's in shitty movies and hates his career. And, and, and he's able to comment on a lot of the movies he's made and uh, make fun of those movies. And it's about the relationship of comics. Whereas like for me, I think the relate the, the friends in King of Staten Island were profoundly annoying and um, I did not want to spend any time with them whatsoever. Whereas like 
the group in Funny People also mean to each other, not very nice, but I found their competitiveness based in a reality of like comedians who are competing for jobs and there being this kind of like deep competition within their friend like within their friend zone. And I, that, that kind of dynamic I found way more interesting. And so when they were being dicks to each other, it worked for me. more. Yeah. Joe to hell um, is really great in that movie. Yeah. And Jason Schwartzman is uh teach. I forget that, <laughs> that Eric Bana uh, relationships plot. And then the, it knocked up the, the like the C story between Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann's relationship. Those seem to be the impetus to make him realize, like, I guess I just have to make this as 40. This is clearly on my mind. Let me get it out of my system, and then I can move on. Yeah, and let me continue to cast my two daughters in every movie. Um, she she was good. The uh, The older daughter I, was yeah. good in Staten Island, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, she was fine. I, I, was, I was waiting for her to, like, suck, but I was like, damn it, she's fine. Yeah, she's actually, and she's gotten better. You can tell she's actually, you know, trying to be an actor. And no, it's no longer just, like, a vanity thing, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I would probably, for me, bottom the bottom is Trainwreck and King of Staten Island. Those are the two that just like. I and this is maybe this is forty. I I should probably put this as forty last. I would probably be the same, but um, I don't know. I haven't. I've only seen this as forty once, and I've actually only seen this is forty King of Staten Island and Trainwreck only once. So wait, so how would how would you rank those three? Like what what's four, five, six? Uh, right. Number six I have right now is Trainwreck. Number five, King of Staten Island. Number four, this is 40. Got it. Okay. But, but I might be, I'm probably willing to switch this as 40 and King of Staten Island. Um, but yeah, for me, the solid top three is definitely Funny People Knocked Up and then 40-Year-Old Virgin. Those I'm pretty locked in on. The the, the bottom three. But that that's three, two, one, what you just said, right? So 40-Year-Old yeah, Virgin's yeah. your number one overall. Yeah, yeah, I was even I see clips of it now and it makes me laugh. Like some of the stuff that just like knocked up. I I'd be interested to revisit knocked up. I, I think knocked up is pretty great. I, um, I understand that it hasn't aged well for people in some cases, and I think yeah, especially like the the women's role and the way Catherine Heigl is portrayed and Leslie Mann is portrayed. I know a lot of um, there's been a lot of think pieces about that in the years since, and you know, it'd be interesting to re-engage with the movie on that level. I, I haven't since it's come out. It's been a while since I've watched it in full, but that was still, that was a big deal when that movie came out. Like I, I, people might not remember that, but that was a really fucking big deal. That movie made like 250 million domestic. Like it was a massive hit. And yeah, I mean, it's still funny. It, it brought up Seth Rogen. It like solidified him as a star. Um, Catherine Heigl is a whole other deal that we could talk about later, but um she works in that movie i think i think she's still very good in that that movie um so i don't know yeah that one works but for me 40 year old virgin is still unfortunately his first movie but still the purest most funniest uh just the most rewatchable version of whatever it is he's doing and the only movie he directed that is under two hours long that might also have something to do with it sure it does all right i think that's i'm good on jet apatow are you yes sir all right, let's dive into this week's albums. So this Friday or this last Friday, we had a major weekend in music just kind of slam upon us. Uh, I, I wasn't ready for all of it. Some of it surprised me. Uh, we're going to talk about a few albums now. Uh, one of them is by Miss Tayana Taylor, whose previous album uh, it was an EP called KTSE. We're also going to dive into Bob Dylan's new record. Neil Young released a classic out of his vault, and uh, Phoebe Bridgers. One of my favorite singer-songwriters released her favorite album. So uh, we're going to start talking with uh, Tom here about Tayana Taylor. 
And her previous album, uh, just to give some context for the uh, her, she is a uh, R&B singer, uh, with a lot of hip-hop influence. Her last album was an eight-track EP called KTSE, uh, which was produced by Kanye West. It's on his Good Music uh, record label, and he produced the whole album. And that album was a uh, small kind of eight track EP. And, uh, they worked on it for a very long time. And my immediate reaction to this new album was that it was surely a reaction to, uh, that album. Her new album is called the album. (laughs) And this one, instead of eight tracks is 23 tracks. It is an hour and nearly 20 minutes long. It's a big sit. Um, it's a lot of music. Uh, Tom, tell me what you thought about it. Uh, not that great. I mean, not, not, not bad. I didn't dislike it, but so what I was texting you and then I, I withheld because I figured we'll, we'll talk about it on the pod, but uh, like you just said, I'm a huge fan of KTSE. So what I did when I found out Tiana was coming out with this big 23-track, 77-minute album, I went back and re-listened to KTSE for the first time in a while, and even better than I remember, top to bottom, there's not a bad track of those eight. And then I also... Uh, Checked out for the very first time her her debut from 2014, which is an album called Seven. I, I assume yep. it's called Seven in Roman numerals. VII is the name of yeah. it. And um, I thought it was okay. I thought it was solid. Um, it, it showed promise. So she, I knew, I first in, was introduced to her without realizing it at the time. She's on a track on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, the Kanye album. She does backing vocals on a track there. So I guess they've known each other for a while. They produced that 2018 record when Kanye was doing those five albums over five weeks, which was, I miss those Kanye days. I wish. She is, she's also the star of the Fade video from Kanye's Life of Pablo album. Right. Um, if you watch that video, that's her with her fucking incredible body several weeks after having a baby doing this incredible workout. It, so it, that, that, that was my first introduction, actually, to Tayana Taylor was that, was that video. And she also apparently has a reality TV show with her NBA player husband, Iman Shumpert, called uh, Tayana and Iman or Iman and Tayana or something. Yeah, who also appears in that video by Kanye at the end in a very strange image that you, I'll let you guys go YouTube to watch. And is also, uh, Iman is on two tracks of this album out of the 23. One, uh, just uh, spoken word stuff, and then actually uh, some vocal work on another track early on in the album. I guess he well, he's, he's an aspiring he's on, musician. He's also a big part of the intro. Yes, very much. Which, uh, so um, I guess my reaction to this album was like we were saying the last one was eight tracks this one is um quite a bit more well, literally and, three times longer basically yeah literally three times longer and what it reminded me of is her and another r&b singer named sizza had albums that came out several years ago and both artists kind of expressed frustration with their producers in terms of them taking control over the tracks and taking forever to kind of be perfectionist with these albums and um I think they felt like they were not as in, as collaborative as they should have been. And then both artists, I think, felt very frustrated by how long it took them for those those albums to, came out, to come out. And I think this album is probably a reaction to that in terms of like, all right, I'm throwing everything out there. You're getting all this music that I've had stored up for years in me. And even though Kanye is one of many, many producers on this album, I think this was her kind of trying to really show all the colors of the rainbow that she has inside of her. And... Like so many albums, you know, that are this long, like it's just, uh, you know, 
for me, it's like um, it's overkill. Yeah, well, there. I mean, there's a good way to do it. I think there's like stuff like the the White Album, where sometimes artists do this thing where they kind of say "fuck cohesion." Let's just throw everything we have, no matter what style, no matter if it all sounds like it all comes from the same album or the same influences or whatever. It's just this accumulation of all their skills and abilities. Um, I think Bruce Springsteen's The River is a little bit like this. I think the Vampire Weekend's uh, latest record is a little bit like this in terms of just like, look, we've got a lot of tracks, and I just want to give them all to you. Like, don't worry about it being like this cohesive album. So, and that's how kind of how I feel about the white album, which is just this crazy hodgepodge of influences and sounds. And this one's not quite all over the place in terms of soundscape, but it does feel like her trying on a different, a couple different outfits and different styles. Some a little bit more hip hop, some a little bit more sultry, some a little bit more um, dance, you know, there's a little bit of everything on here. And I I would imagine anyone listening to it is probably going to find like three or four songs they like on it, you know, but it's like, it's a lot to get through to find those three or four albums or three or four tracks. Exactly. And honestly, I, I, I see what you're saying, but it all kind of ended up sounding kind of samey to me. And what I was saying about Kanye and that previous album, his skills as a producer are just so on another level. He only produced, I think, two tracks or, you know, was a producer on two of the tracks on this one. And they're two of the best tracks in the entire album. Um, I think Teana has a lot of talent. She has a lot of skill i think she has a bright future i look forward to more of her work um but yeah i don't think she was ready to put out an album of this caliber like of this like this is just too uh what's the what's the term is too uh, Am- ambitious yeah too amb- exactly i think it was too ambitious for this point i think uh seven was you know like 40 minutes ktsc's 23 minutes Something in that range, like keep building your style, your influence, your voice, because nothing, nothing really stood out on this one. Like it, the, the music's all good, you know. She got some really yeah. talented people to guest track. She got really talented producers to work on it with her. She has a good voice. She has rhythm, but she, I don't think she's fully found her voice yet, and like has honed in on what she excels at. And maybe this album is just a lot of like. Like you said, throwing out different influences and styles on the wall and seeing what sticks. But you should probably be doing that in the studio, and then you call from there and put out yeah, a, a yeah, really like, great ten track record or something. Or do like we talked just about Carly Rae Jepsen, where she released a tight album and then a year later dropped like the side tracks yeah. that were like, "Hey, these are all still really good. And I like these, but like they're it's a different album." Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, there there are a couple good tracks on it. I really I love the cover. It reminds me of Grace Jones a lot. Um, yeah, I can see that, uh, which is very sexy. Um, it's it's fine. Nothing nothing amazing. Uh, like you said, you'll find a couple tracks you you like. I uh, like a couple. Um, basically, the last like three tracks on the album ended up being three of my favorites. I would say. So I would recommend those three, like maybe start at the back of the album. And if you like what you hear, uh, start again, start over from the beginning and work your way through it and see if more uh, stick out to you. But that's kind of my um, my impression of it. Not nowhere near as as great, obviously not as tight as KTSC, but um, a flawed uh, album that has some promising tracks. And I'll, I'll keep listening to her. Yeah. Um, one of those final tracks, you mentioned it to me in a text. You're like, there's a great Mace sample here. Um, it's for the song How You Want It with King Combs. Yes. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. 
listen to it yet but um and i know you don't know this or you know that i made a soundtrack for the script i'm working on um but like uh, it's a playlist that i've kind of compiled of songs that are mentioned in the script that will not be in the movie ultimately they i do not have the budget to afford them (laughs) but they've kind of like helped me guide the script along and are kind of more for tone references and historical time period references and such Uh um but the first track on the soundtrack and the first track mentioned in the script is mace's what you want featuring total um, so I've actually been listening to, uh, that Mace song that is sampled, uh, in this new Tiana Taylor album constantly over the last couple months. Oh, fantastic. So as soon as I, so as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh shit, they chose the, my favorite Mace. It's such, it's that, that original Mace track is so great. It's still so great. I ended up watching the video for it when I heard it sampled in the Tiana Taylor. And I'm like, oh yeah, man, I'm in seventh grade all over again. This is fantastic. Well, just so you know, the reason it's the start of my screenplay is the start of my screenplay is at a seventh grade school dance. And that's the song playing in the school gym. <laughs> I love it. Is, uh, so, does the, is the last track of the dance All My Life by Casey and Jojo? No, but it should be. But like, yeah, like the, so the script references songs like that where like they're at school dances and stuff. And I'm like, this it's this era. This is the kind of song that would be playing in the background. But this, the, the one I chose for the opening of the movie is that Mace song. I love it. And so, yeah, so I, that kind of, you know, I don't know, just brought back a lot of the the Mace song, the, my Mace listening of recently. I was like, oh, this is kind of serendipitous. As Ian, as our buddy Ian likes to say, the slowest rapper of all time. The guy, the guy with the slowest flow ever, and the most mumbled. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, bass looking feel good. I don't do, but I should imitate it. It's out of love. Yeah. I love bass. Yeah. All right. Um, but we did not love the new Tayana Taylor album. We do like her. I saw her in concert. I thought she put on a hell of a, a very high energy show, actually. And um, yeah, she she's a lot of fun. I, I want to keep supporting her. There's definitely some good tracks on here. I'll I'll lay on one right now that we would recommend. that said let's move on you know who else released an album kind of a bigger deal than tayana taylor sorry no shade on Ta- uh, on tayana but uh mr bob fucking dylan Ooh. bobby d re- released an album called rough and rowdy ways it's his first collection of original tracks in a number of years and critics have been losing their fucking mind over this new album tom you listen to it a bunch it's an hour and 10 minutes let's talk about it yeah it's his first uh full album of new material since 2012 Tempest, uh, which I'm not very familiar with. I listened to a little bit of it today. Yeah, I listened to it this week. Like that was the first time I've really kind of sat down. With yeah, it. in between that and this album, he released a trio of uh, cover albums. Uh, I guess you know he had his 
Protestant uh, religious period. He also had his Frank Sinatra period because he covered a bunch of standards and Sinatra tunes um, in the middle of this past decade. And now we have Rough and Rowdy Ways. He he dropped a 17-minute JFK assassination epic a few months ago, and everyone was like, holy shit, a new Bob Dylan track, and it's, it's the length of Tiana Taylor's last album. Uh, then he released one or two more singles, and now we finally have the album Rough and Rowdy Ways. It is, uh, as of record time, the second highest rated album of the year on Metacritic right now. The only one that beats it is Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which we reviewed earlier in a podcast and is uh, at the very top of both of our uh, best of the year lists at or very near the top, I should say. Um so yeah, Rough and Rowdy Ways, I've listened to. It's 10 tracks, 70 minutes long. And here's my thing with Dylan. So I've, I've been on a Dylan kick um, when he released that uh, um, Murder Most Foul track, the 17-minute track, a couple months ago. I ended up going on a bit of a Dylan kick and decided to work my way through chronologically. And I'm basically into the early 70s right now with my uh, re-listen. Sure. And it's kind of fascinating how quickly he started releasing 55-minute albums. You know, back in an era where vinyl was still very much the thing, like CDs weren't released yet, which I think ushered in a wave of uh, artists putting out 70-minute albums, 62-minute albums, because you could fit more on a on a cd on a disc than you could on a vinyl you know back in the 60s it was a lot of 38 minute albums stuff like that but dylan was going for like 53 minutes 54 minutes and stuff like that and this album basically indulges all of those uh i indulgences that dylan has of uh songs that are seven minutes long contain 12 verses and no choruses it's a lot of that um i will say overall i really like this record and there are a couple tracks um, that I really, really love, especially, and this was one of the singles, I Contain Multitudes, which is the opening track of the album, Yeah, I think is one of the best Dylan songs I have heard in decades, like in a very, 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 very long time. I think it is so beautiful. I love, you know, his voice is a big, <laughs> is a big bone of contention but most people either absolutely yeah, love you, it or absolutely hate it yeah take it or leave it at this point guys. Um, but it's it's funny listening to early 60s dylan and then putting on a brand new record from 2020 and just hearing how his voice has changed over the years yeah. um and you know it doesn't oh sometimes it works for me sometimes it doesn't like there are other tracks on this record where his voice can be a little uh grading or really out of tune which i know has never been a big issue for dylan he doesn't care if the instruments fall out of tune in the middle of a track that's that's never been a thing that bothers him but his voice and i contain multitudes and the actual instrumentation of the guitar playing on that track are so fucking beautiful um i've been obsessed with that with that song for a while and i think it's a flat-out masterpiece um, yeah, I'm a huge, huge um, fan of that. So that that's just a great start to the album. So I was very pumped after that track. Yeah, well, speaking of his voice, I will say um, since the year 2009, I have every year around the Christmas time made sure in front of my mother to play Christmas in the Heart, his Christmas album, mm. uh, where he does songs like uh, Winter Wonderland, Little Drummer Boy, Here Comes Santa Claus, 
And um, the reason I play this in front of my mom every year is my mother despises Bob Dylan's voice, <laughs> hates it, absolutely hates it. And you hate, hate your mother, life. so of course. And so, and so in 2009, when he released Christmas in the Heart, and I don't know if you've heard Christmas in the Heart. I have. But it, al- it almost appears as if Dylan went out of his way to make his voice the ugliest as possible. <laughs> and you know, like... Like when I like as soon as the track one is here comes Santa Claus and it's you hear the like, you know, some some nice little some nice little instrumentation. And then you just hear here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus. (laughs) And like anyone who (laughs) it makes me so happy. It makes me so happy to watch people like have to hear it for the first time. And it just makes me laugh. And um, I also went to go see him in concert a few years ago and. Same thing. He had that terrible frog voice, and I loved every second of it. And I heard from people afterwards who were there. They were like, oh, that sucked. Like, his voice is terrible. I was like, have you not heard him for the last 20 fucking years? Like, what did you expect? Like, I don't. And they were like, well, he didn't play. They didn't like that he, like, if you go to see Bob Dylan now, as I'm sure you know, like, he does, you know, he completely has rewritten the songs and is completely do completely different melodies and if, like he'll do electric versions of acoustic songs and blues versions of whatever other kinds of songs. He's not playing like just a, he'll never grab an acoustic guitar and play blown in the wind again. Like that's just not what he's doing anymore. And if you, if that's what you're expecting going to see him in, in a live show, you're going to be very disappointed. But I, I would say my listen to rough and rowdy ways is very consistent with what he's been doing for the last like 15 years. Like I know we, you mentioned he's been doing a lot of covers, but in terms of like the sound, like he's just in this place of like melding singer songwriter, R and B and old blues and uh, kind of just even a little touch of jazz here and there and kind of just melding them all together with, like you said, these like fucking 12 verses, no chorus, eight minute tracks. And if you're willing, if you're willing to like dive into the poetry of his lyrics and take the time, it's very rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding and rich and full. And he's just kind of at this place that it's hard to criticize him. He's doing his own thing, and you're either gonna like it or you don't. You're either on the Dylan train at this point in your life, or you're not. I don't know if this album is the one that's gonna change your mind, but if you like Dylan, I think this is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So um, for me how I feel about this album. There are a couple tracks that I'm going to listen to uh, a couple more times while, you know, I go through the year of music. And then once that's over, I'll never hear them again. And that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's what every Dylan album is like, because he is simultaneously uh, one of the most interesting artists ever, whose work deserves to be poured over with a fine tooth comb and lyrics need to be researched and understanding the beatings, every line, and so many of his songs are like rich with subtext or irony or references to literature or music or poetry or paintings. Like he's he's one of those guys who you des- he deserves to be um, researched and, and cared about, dissected in that way. But at the same time, he is one of the most boring artists ever. I mean, if you just want to put on a bunch of Dylan songs and not really pay attention to them. 80% of them are going to sound exactly the same. And it is so much of the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not until you really get into the nitty gritty of what he's singing about. Like, okay, what are the themes of this album that really separates a lot? Like there are some tracks that 
are just so undeniable, you know, like like a Rolling Stone, anyone who hears that song, that song's a fucking banger. It always has been and it always will be. You know, like that's just such a that that song is so full and dynamic that it's undeniable. But there's so much Dylan that like Ballad of a Thin Man or something like that. It's a great great song and if you really look at listen to those lyrics and understand what he's talking about and get behind kind of like the punk rock like embrace the freaks message of the song i love that tune but you you have to work for dylan so the the best part about a new dylan track or a new dylan album to me are finding those handful of tracks that you really respond to and like you find the meaning within them and get a lot out of it that way and i i like that he's he's a guy who's almost 80 years old his first album came out in 1962. It's been almost 60 years, and we're still getting a guy who's able to write lyrics this deep and this full of references, and a guy who has eight decades of uh, culture and history to draw on, you know, and sing about and yeah. talk about. And it's an album so obsessed, obviously, with death. I mean, for a guy at this point in his career, how can it not be? And then you have this huge JFK epic which almost seems to be like a summation of art over the past 50 years since since like America's fall from innocence, which you yeah. know, a lot of people consider to be the JFK assassination at the time when the country shifted from this blissful ignorance into waking up into like the true horrors of the world, right? Right. And to me, it's almost like that's his, you know, that took place in 1963 that came out that that assassination happened at the same time he was blowing up as a as a folk superstar with <clears throat> excuse me with uh, I think the Free Will of Bob Dylan which is only his second record came out that same year so to me I feel like this 16 17 minute track his first piece of new music that he had released that particular song the first one in almost 8 years to me I think a track like that is very much worth examining the way you would examine like a desolation row or something like that. Like, okay, this, this is clear clearly something very, very important to him. The fact that he released that, that he did not care to trim that at all, that it's the first piece of new music that he's written in almost a decade. That sums up so much about America and art since he's been around specifically since he has been around. So that's a, that's a track that I'm going to take way beyond this year and really examine and kind of enjoy just going through lyric after lyric and f- figuring out all the references to all the different songs and books and movies that he's talking about in that track. But then there are others like that Key West tune about like how great it is to retire in Key West that I'm just like, all right, Bob, thanks for those yeah. nine minutes. I'll never get back. Yeah, I was going to say that nine minutes track yeah. about Key West. Yeah. Um, my favorite track or I don't know about favorite, but the one that really stood out to me that I think I would like to return back to more is uh, track four. I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Oh yeah. I like that Uh, one a lot too. I'm sitting on my chest. Lost in the stars. Listening to the sounds of the sad guitars. All right, yeah, that one I just found to be a very 
warm and loving and just kind of like open hearted track. And, you know, the, the song, like, as we talked about, the album is full of kind of dense homework. And I think for people like us, if you're willing to do the homework, it's very rewarding in terms of reading the lyrics and kind of getting behind the musical influences that are driving everything. It can, it, you know, can all be very fulfilling if you really want to commit to it. But like, just in terms of having it on, I found that to be a very sweet, loving song um, about, you know, I've, about giving yourself over to someone. Um, so that was my favorite track. I'm definitely going to return to the album. I agree with you about um, uh, Murder Most Foul and how that kind of stands as a representation of his whole career and where his career began and what formed his identity. And um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting album. Um, I think all of his work is interesting. And it reminds me now, like when I was first discovering Dylan was when Time Out of Mind came out, um, which was in 97, I believe. And he's just had these moments throughout his career. He releases so much music. He like, he's continued to release music. He throughout our lives has released the bootleg series, which is just like old demo versions, live versions, alternate albums, alternate takes of like material that he's recorded throughout the years. And, uh, some of that's just as essential as the full albums. And there's just such, it's such a big discography and you know, like it's, it's hard to, sum it up. If you're into it, you'll be into this new album. That's what I would say. And the only other thing I would add about this album is that, I don't know if you read it, but Bob Dylan gave an interview to the New York Times this week um, to Mr. Uh, Douglas Brinkley. And it is, I, th- I I was looking on some boards and from what people have been saying, there's like, this is the best Bob Dylan interview that's been done in decades. Um, I read it and it's fascinating. It's a very long interview. Um, but if, if you've ever watched Bob Dylan interviews, even in the Rolling Thunder review movie he did with Scorsese last year, like he is very much about um, tearing apart his image or putting on masks or kind of like putting on a show. He he doesn't want you to get to know the real Bob Dylan. Yeah. So he puts on these kind of like characters. It's all about and obfuscation interview. and yeah. Yeah. Being and kind snarky of like and not answering snar- questions. Yeah. Whereas in this article, it is probably as open and honest and just forthright as he's ever been. He's not really throwing up walls. He's being pretty open about it. So uh, I, it was a good read for me. But then the more I read about the the interview with other Dylan fans, they were the ones who were saying like, no, you don't understand. He's never been this available before to an interviewer. So it's, it's if you're a Dylan fan and you like this album, uh, definitely go check out that New York Times uh, interview with Bob Dylan that just came out last week um it's called bob dylan has a lot on his mind cool yeah and i would say if you don't really know dylan like you said this probably isn't going to be the one to get you into it but i would i would suggest um if you want to start here or wherever you decide to start if you want to throw on a dylan album just pick one and uh sit there with the lyrics open on your computer and read along um, because that's his biggest strength is his poetry. You know, he's not like, you know, we're about to talk about Phoebe Bridgers coming up, whose songs are often two verses and a chorus and maybe like an outro or a refrain. You know, we're talking like 125 words per song. Dylan's like 3,000 or something crazy. Yeah. So like you, you have to you have to be in it for the lyrics and the story and what he's trying to talk about. And obviously he was such a major figure in the 1960s in particular he was so on the forefront of a lot of the social revolution and protests that were going on at that time. You know, he has songs like The Hurricane about Reuben Carter from the mid-70s. His tracks like that are really worth your time. Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Like, stuff like that. People people should check out. And 
if you really want to try to get into it, you you just got to treat it like uh, like he's a novelist or a poet and go at it that way. It's a different way of listening to music, but if you can dig it, it's rewarding. Absolutely. All right. So from one old 1960s and 70s singer-songwriter to another, uh, let's move on from Bob Dylan to Neil Young. released Homegrown this weekend. Uh, and Homegrown, unlike Dylan's new album, is not an album of new released songs, of newly recorded songs. It is a collection of lost songs and of songs that were only previously available in live versions and alternate versions. This was an album that he recorded in the 70s. Uh, if you're familiar with this kind of 70s golden run of Neil Young that he went on for a stretch in his early career, um, this album was recorded sometime after On the Beach and before Zuma. If you want to go look into the, like where exactly that was, but he's on the road a lot during uh, that time, and a lot of these tracks, you know, became known elsewhere. But this is the first time it's ever been released in full and uh, with its original version. So in some ways, it's just like this lost Neil Young '70s album that just never got released. That Neil Young finally decided to drop on us, and it came out this week. And I will just say I loved it. Like it's it's 34 minutes. It's um, Full, I mean, if I like Neil Young, and I like specifically this era of Neil Young, so you know, it it probably stood out to me more than it would have had a new Neil Young record come out. I, I was more interested, and in, I was like, oh, this is an old one. Okay, now you have my attention. And this one, you know, it's songs. I, you can tell he's on the road during a lot of this because I, the songs are all about hotels and different states, and I think all the relationships that he's singing about are in this kind of haze of ending and just beginning, and it. Features a lot of backup support from members of the band like Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson and who also would work, who were the backup band for Bob Dylan, speaking of Bob Dylan. And um, yeah, and to contrast it once again with Bob Dylan's epic, this one's only 34 minutes. It's a bit easier of a listen to get through. The songs tend to be like two to three minutes long. So more, it's a totally more tracks than the Dylan and half as long. Exactly. Yeah. So um, what did you think of Homegrown? I was a pretty massive fan uh, I'll st- state that up front, but what did you what did you make of it? Uh, I I fucking loved it. Um, yeah, you mentioned the 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 approximate timeline. So for those who know Neil Young, you're going to know all these album names very well. But basically, Neil Young's first studio album is the eponymous the Neil Young album '69. Then he comes out with Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere with Crazy Horse, his first album with Crazy Horse also 69 after the gold rush in 1970 harvest in 1972 then we get on the beach in 74 tonight's the night one of my probably top three favorite neil young records in 75 and then, but it's a live album and then, for the most part and then zoom no no it's not no tonight's the night's not a live album and then never. Uh, i was thinking the, never mind. and then uh are you thinking of rust Never sleeps, or yeah, yeah. I I looked at the. I was looking, so I read it wrong. Uh, Tonight, the night in '75. Also, Zuma came out later in 1975 with Crazy Horse. So, I mean, that's a string of basically seven classic albums, and this is one that could fit right in there as make it eight. Why not? 
I think this this album's super fun. It feels a little looser um, than maybe some of the other albums from that period. Like if you look at Harvest or Tonight's the Night or even On the Beach and compared to this, um, this one feels a little more loosely strung together. Like you said, there are a couple tracks that are... I mean, Neil Young, usually, especially early in his career, he didn't run too long, with except for the occasional like seven-minute jammed out Cortez or something like that. But this, yeah, this but... has a couple like sub-two-minute songs, and then there's one track that's basically him telling a story. Um, yeah, Florida, a, which is basically him just talking about Florida for two and a half minutes. Yeah, telling telling like a crazy story of life on the road to his bandmates. Um, but I like that quality of this album. I like that it kind of has that loose and fun feel to it, and it maybe it maybe doesn't it makes the album maybe feel a little less um, little less driven. Like maybe it doesn't have the cohesion of a purpose behind it like some albums do or maybe that purpose isn't as planned out possibly i don't know but for what it is and for what the songs uh represent from that time period i think it totally fits into that era of neil young like it doesn't feel like oh he didn't release these songs because they were no good you know, and now he's just looking yeah, for material yeah. from the archives to put out. Like this totally works as an album's quality of that era. And I feel like a, a thing people do a lot is lionize the past, right? Like you don't appreciate a new release that's maybe fantastic because we need that remove. And then anything that becomes 25 years old, you look back with like, well, well, that was when things were good. But this is one of those albums that, is coming out now and is technically a 2020 album, but is an album from the past. And we can immediately understand, oh no, it totally fits in with that classic Hall of Fame period of Neil Young's career, which is cool. That's cool that we can experience that in real time. Yeah, Asterix, the live album I was thinking of was Time Fades Away, which is a very good album, but it's not like... No, I, I don't. Is it original? I'd have to go look at that one. But I, I was pulling it up. It's not like all original songs, but like, is it, anyway? I'm not I, sure. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Up. I I'm like a 65 percent big Neil Young guy. Like I have big gaps in my Neil Young. Yes, knowledge, time but, fades away is the. Um, yeah, I was looking. I was like, I was like, I know there's a live album in there, and what's weird, tonight's the night is actually my favorite of all his albums. Um, Har- I would say Harvest. It goes tonight's the night, Harvest, and after the Gold Rush, and then everybody knows this is nowhere for me. And then, oh wait, so you agree every- with me that tonight's the night is one of your favorite? Because that's the one I said was top three for me. No, yeah, that's absolutely like number one or two. For oh, me. nice, cool. Um, yeah, and basically, I would say everything after comes a time. Looking at his list of albums post 1978 I outside of his film score for the movie Dead Man I don't know that I have much like a ton of affection for it or a connection to it I should say I don't know that it's bad but I just um the last album of his that I've checked out that I remember kind of being into was um the Chrome Chrome Dreams 2 which was actually an old album which was once again like a 70s album that was being like a lost album that was found and there's What about still- uh Harvest Moon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Harvest Moon. Yeah, you and your f- fuck. Nineteen ninety two. You um, know it. 
Yeah. So yeah, Harvest Moon has, I think, the last big single from him. Besides, there's like Rockin' in the Free World and stuff that he had later on. But um, yeah, like I his '70s career. I'm looking at it now. I really only care about '70s Neil Young. Well, <laughs> like for the the thing for the is, most part, yeah, I mean, for the most part, there's a few tracks elsewhere, and a few, like you said, like I think. Uh, Harvest Moon's pretty good, but there's a lot of albums that I'm just like, I don't think I've listened to this at all. Well, that's the thing. Like, two-part statement here. Part number one, if you just wanted to focus on his 70s career, that's that's a discography worthy of a career for many musicians. That's, I mean, U2 has like 14 studio albums, and if you just want to look at Neil Young from 69 to 79, and if you, especially if you want to include Homegrown in there now, that's 12 albums. That's like U2's entire career, just of Neil Young's first decade. The other thing is, uh, Homegrown is his forty-second studio album. That's not including. That's not including. He's put out, I think, four soundtracks. He's put out six or seven live albums, maybe more. Just studio albums. He is now at forty-two. He has basically come out with an album every sixteen months since nineteen sixty-nine. Like it's fucking crazy. This guy never stops working and never stops releasing music. And he's such a grouch about it. Apparently, everyone I know who's gone to see him live is like, "Yeah, he, yeah, he, he's a grouch when he plays live because he's mad that no one likes his the last he, thirty years he, of his he, music." Well, no, he'll be like, "All right, I know you guys are here for that, but I, I have ten new songs I want to play for you." And people are like, "Oh, okay." It, he's one of those where he's like, he's not playing Cinnamon Girl or anything like that at his shows. If you go to see him, oh, that's his right. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But I'll, you know, it's there's a difference between like there's those who are doing that like. You know, no, I'm not going to play Harvest for you. And then you have your U2s who are like, of course, we're going to play with or without you every night. We have to. You know, but that, so that's the other like, thing is U2 doesn't have 42 albums to pull from either. So they kind of have to play with or without you, at least occasionally. Right, Neil Young? Neil Young has like a thousand songs to draw from. It's insane. Yeah. But yeah, but I've, also, I've never... That, but does he have a song as popular as With or Without You? You know that there would... I don't know. I'd have to go look. Old Man? Is that... You know, I don't know. Um... Oh man! Well, I was just about. It can't be old. Heart, heart, heart of gold on Spotify. Heart of gold. Thank you. Played. That was the song I was just blanking on suddenly. But heart of gold, I think, would be his most famous, right? Yeah, that and Harvest Moon are the top two songs on Spotify for him. And honestly, at this point, maybe Rockin' in the Free World because I feel like that's become such like a commercial song. Yeah, and the one, the two that I actually probably knew the most in high school, the the ones that started getting me into them were "Down by the River" and "Cortez the Killer." Those were kind of those are actually like two songs that I really loved by him. He had an album called "Decade" that my girlfriend's mom had, and I like borrowed I borrowed slash ended up stealing her copy of that, and that's that was my introduction to Neil Young was sort of through his greatest hits, and I kind of had to make my way through his albums after that, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm still very much like I, I would say I'm like a half pro Neil Young. Like I can talk pretty strongly about a 60s and 70s run, but I'm not very good after that. But since this new album falls into that 70s career, I fucking loved it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan as well. I would highly, highly recommend it. Like I told Phil, I am going to consider this a 2020 album. So expect it on my year end list. I'll say that much. Nice. Well, an album you can expect on my year end list is by Miss Phoebe Bridgers. Hey, no. Her new album, her new album is Punisher. It is my favorite of this week's releases. It's the one I was the most excited about and the one I've listened to the most. 
Um, Phoebe Bridgers is a singer-songwriter. She uh, just released Punisher. She released Strangers in the Alps back in, uh, I'm already blanking, 2018, I believe. 17. And 2017, and in the intervening years, she's went on to record Boy Genius, an EP with Julian Baker. No, nope, 2018, I think. Sorry. No, so, 17. Yeah, yeah. So, Either way, Shit. she released Stranger. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> At some point or another, she released Stranger in the Alps after um and after an EP that I I got really into as an EP, and so I was I was an early fan of her because of uh, the production company that was releasing that EP. So I was very I've been very excited about her since the very beginning of career, of her career, and her last few albums she did um, Boy Genius with uh, Julian Baker and Lucy Dacus, who are also two very talented female singer songwriters. They form this kind of woman singer songwriter power group and it's six songs i think it's they're very strong and um especially the live versions of those songs where they kind of like rock them out a little bit more than the album does and then she went on to do um better oblivion community center with uh, connor obers of bright eyes and that album is um, another collaboration it's very full much more rocking and uh, a much more full sound compared to the elliot smith-ish kind of calm whispered acoustics of her previous work. So this new album Punisher is, I, I would say a, a accumulation of all those previous collaborations and albums that she's worked on. It is both very slow acoustic stuff, very uh, kind of delicate and whispered. And you kind of really have to like lean in and pay attention if you want to get the most out of it. It's not very good background music because it'll just kind of probably fade into a lot of strumming for you or humming whatever it is um but if you really focus in on it i think it's got incredibly dense production incredibly like beautiful lush details that you can kind of linger in and just kind of uh, i i they make me swoon i fucking love that i love her lyrics i think she's just incredible i love punisher there's uh, plenty more i can say about it but you're kind of new to phoebe bridger so i'm very curious about what your experience with her has been this week yeah so i took a phoebe bridger's crash course I knew who she was. I had heard her before, uh, but I, I would uh, dare to call myself a fan or anything just because I, I hadn't listened to a full album or anything like that. So I, I spun Stranger in the Alps a couple times. Uh, I listened to uh, Boy Genius just the once because I was unfamiliar until you told me about them. And then I listened to <clears throat> excuse me better oblivion community center i ended up listening to that a few times i ended up i really enjoy that album quite a bit um it's a fun album yeah it's really, really fun uh it was in my like top three or four of last year yeah so i liked all of those uh oh well, i should say uh boy genius i listened to after the first time i heard punisher but um i really liked stranger and better oblivion quite a bit before listening to punisher and did you said uh Punisher was your favorite of the four new releases we just talked about. I don't know. I mean, I I would. I mean, Boy Genius is only six songs. No, no, no. Minutes. Of the four new albums, the Neil Young, the Dylan, and the Oh, Tana. oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Of yes, of the four of this week, yeah, Punisher is the one I'm going to be listening to the most the rest of the year. I can almost guarantee that. Well, me too, baby. Yeah, I was. Well, a, it's also. I was a big fan of this one. I, this is my favorite thing she's done so far. I think. Um, nice. I well, yeah. I, I felt bad. You said you were excited for tracks like DVD menu, and I was like, ah, oh, that's just a <laughs> well, just the <laughs> just the title. But it works. I get why she calls it DVD menu. It works as a one minute every DVD. So I had a job in post production 
not my current job, an earlier job in my life, where uh, I made the DVDs for uh, this company. And every DVD that you make that is made in the standard, like, Apple software, the DVD replication software, you use uh, 60-second audio tracks that just repeat ad infinitum. And this DVD menu track is basically a 60-second instrumental. So to me, it totally works as the introduction to an album. I thought it was a, a fun, clever little way to just kind of set the mood for what the music was going to be like for the rest of the album. So yeah, it's not like a full song, but that's okay. She, I mean, she also has a track called Halloween, which is a full song, which is a great song. Yeah, I was just like, I hope he doesn't think this is a song about a DVD menu. <laughs> I just like the title. Um, so this one is another, like you told me, and just what I got, especially from Stranger in the Alps, more so, more so the better Oblivion Community Center, with Punisher. I listened to it once and just kind of let it play. And then when I decided to go pick it up again, I, I took like a day or two off and then went back to it. Um, that's when I listened to it while reading the lyrics with every song, like a full 100% of my attention is focused on this album for the next 45 minutes. And it was that second playthrough where I really fell in love with it. And like you, like you were saying, the album completely opened up to me. Um, Her lyrics are stunning. Her voice is stunning. The background musicianship is really great and atmospheric. And if you're, not paying attention a lot of it can sound very samey but it's really not um and i think that's her that's her magic trick the the album's called punisher there's a title track uh punisher which is all about her being an obsessive elliot smith fan you mentioned elliot smith yeah he's elliot smith is a big thing throughout her career she cited him a lot and i think if you listen to it's so obvious stranger in the alps it's very obvious it's very obvious that she's an elliot smith's fan it, it, it makes sense because Elliot Smith is a, one of those artists who, if you listen to his work and weren't really listening to it, you're not going to get the full experience and you're not going to appreciate it as much. Yeah, you're like, oh, sad guy on an acoustic guitar. Exactly. But uh, what I liked with Punisher more than even like Stranger in the Alps is I think the accompanying sounds in this album are much more cohesive overall as a record and a lot fuller in your headphones. Like I, I feel like she's adding a lot of elements and playing with melody a little bit more than stranger in the Alps, which gives it a richer, which just gives the album richer textures, which is what I really like, especially when we get to, it almost feels like a spoiler to talk about the final track, but yeah. Yeah. The end of, I know the end. Yeah. It's, it's just it, the whole thing. Uh, it's great. I don't want to spoil it, but it's really fun. Um, yeah. I think this album is fantastic. I loved it. The drugstores are open all night The only real reason I moved to the side I love a good place to hide In plain sight Yeah, like for me, I was already excited about it. I had heard any number of tracks off of it because she's been doing 
um, promotion for it through Instagram during quarantine where she's just kind of done these uh, performances in her bedroom and various other rooms in her house where she's performed demo versions of a lot of these songs already. So I'd heard at least kind of loose demo versions of them. And I was already kind of, yeah, I, I have that same feeling even watching those YouTube videos where you're like, I got to like put my headphones in and really lean in. And if you do, I think that's the best way to get everything out of it because, um, yeah, the lyrics, especially, I think, um, without, you know, reciting all of them or like, but it's as close to this kind of, it's an opposite of Dylan, what we were just talking about in terms of 12 verses full of meaning and all this stuff. I think the way she operates is she'll somehow find three lines that, if you think about it or whatever, it'll just be a, a surprise or a turn of phrase or a double entendre or a, a something that'll just kind of take you by surprise. And it's, 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 and sometimes it's just a punch in the gut. And that happens to me frequently when I sit down with her lyrics, especially on early listens. And for me, um, Kyoto was the first, uh, no, I'm sorry. Garden song was the first single that was released, but Kyoto is kind of the one that, I've gone back to because that's the one that sounds in some ways like the most fun, almost the most better oblivion community center to me of all the tracks. And, um, but if you listen to the song, it's about her dad who she's had a strained relationship with calling her. Um, and you know, she's in and she's in Japan trying to have fun. And the song is about her basically like traveling and not really enjoying herself and having a dad who's trying to get in touch with her and her not wanting to, uh, necessarily forgive him for all the things I believe in real life. He cheated on her mother and kind of, they, there's a bad divorce there, but, and she's never quite forgiven him, but there's even lyrics in the song. Like I don't forgive you, but don't hold me to it. And things like little things like that, where, you know, you're just like, Oh, that's so simple, but it means so much. Or, um, uh, and she just, I don't know. They're so fun. And that's the best thing I can say about her is her lyrics are both funny and kind of, um, quirky, but also just incredibly deep and powerful and sad. Um, at the same time, I don't know, it's everything all at once. Day off in Kyoto. very they can be very like raw and violent too which is something i really like about her like there there are a couple tracks where the story she's telling um there's one there are actually two tracks in particular one is uh, uh i forget which one i think maybe chinese satellite um there are a couple yeah even that there were no stars out tonight so i wished upon a chinese satellite you know those like you're like oh i know exactly <laughs> you know like i don't know i like that yeah well Ch chinese satellite is and you know another thing that's the exact opposite of dylan you're talking about how dylan's fans were saying you know he's never been this open in interviews and is really trying to like demystify himself uh not that she's propping herself up but if you want to if you want to find an artist who's very open about the meanings of her songs and her lyrics she's not it's not hard to find phoebe bridgers talk about her own music in a very um self-effacing way like in a, in a way that's i think is is very charming it does not seem egotistical at all you know 
Uh, and yeah. I really like that about her. I, I like that she is, in her own way, demystifying like the mysterious musician, the, the mysterious singer who is talking about all this pain and suffering, but not really talking about it to people. Like she's very open about all this stuff. So there's there's a song like Chinese Satellite, which is all about her fear of death and her wish that she could just be like the the people that she sees who put all of their faith in God in an afterlife and. You know, she's just convinced, like, we're all going to die and it's going to be over and it's going to suck. And she wishes it wasn't like that. Or there are songs, uh, there are a couple songs. Um, one is called I See You, which is all about her relationship with her drummer, who she was madly in love with. And then they broke up. And the, the lyrics could be as pointed as, like, I fucking hate your mom. And it's like, you're talking about the drummer's mom. <laughs> very, I, well, very blatantly I, in this song. I have it, like, up in front of me, actually, because I, I love this lyric. I, I, I was even reading this out to Shell the other night. Um, the verse is, if you're a work of art, I'm standing too close. I can see the brush strokes. I hate your mom. I hate it when she opens her mouth. It's amazing to me how much you can say when you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a great... And, it's that that's the verse and she delivers it slower and you know emphasizes other words more but like just those simple lyrics of like you're standing close to you you know exactly what that means if you've been in a museum like something so beautiful but like when you get up super close to it you might be like oh i can kind of see all these details that i couldn't see from far away and like with the same thing when you're getting close to somebody you're like oh i can see the things that are making up this image of this person that i'm looking at and to see like the brush strokes being like her mom you know it's like i i hate this brush stroke but i also i hate your mom and like these things it's it's a weird way of i feel so much when i hear lyrics like that and i can picture a whole story of a family relationship and a dynamic and it's like these are like five lines but i feel like i know everything that's happening here. yeah she's doing so much with so little which is what i love and there's like so there's that track about a, a failed relationship, ultimately. And then there's another one where the whole point of the song is, um, like, the hardest thing a person can do is love someone who doesn't love themselves. It doesn't take care of themselves because it just makes you feel like shit and it makes them not respect you. And she relates, like, the love she has for this person who doesn't love them back or, like, treats them like shit because they can't even love themselves and she taught she likens her love to basically being a pet dog bringing a dead bird back to the front door every day which is like she uses that's such a great comparison because you know a dog will bring you a dead a dead rat or something being like this is a gift i got you but you as the the dog's owner you don't want that gift that's not something you want like oh i know i know what you're i know what you mean thank you dog that's very sweet get this thing the fuck away from me though and to compare that to the love you're giving to someone who can't appreciate it is so brilliant. That's such a poetic and brilliant line. I love that she that she's able to make such poetry out of such like dark, disturbing imagery in a way. You know, I love that. Yeah, she actually uses dead birds. Like she uses multiple imagery. Yeah, she she references it again the, later. She uses dead birds throughout the album. She talks about ghosts a lot. She talks about being alone a lot. And so some of this was just like really you know hitting me during quarantine you know but um my favorite song you know we can talk about that my f- personal favorite song right now is a uh, moon song you could have you could have stuck your tongue down the throat of somebody 
Which um, is another one of those songs where the lyrics just kind of just swept me up. Um, I thought it was so romantic and kind of just swoon worthy. Um, and once again, in like four or five lines, she says everything that I, you know, she sums up everything, which was you, like even simple. Like you asked to walk me home, but I had to carry you. And like the, something like that is you're just like, oh, those are, that's one line. And I can picture that. And uh, the the next line is, and you push me in, and now my feet can't touch the bottom of you. And so suddenly it's like, oh, they're laying together. And that's such a crazy way of, you know, saying like you're laying down together. And then the second verse is, uh, stuck your t- you couldn't have stuck your tongue down the throat of somebody who loves you more. And I, for some reason, thought that was the most disgusting and beautiful lyric I'd ever heard. It is. That's, that's <laughs> such a great lyric. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, she... That, and I th- so mood song is the song I'm talking about with the imagery of the dog bringing a dead animal. Yeah, she says you couldn't have stuck your tongue down the throat of somebody who loves you more. So I will wait the next time you want me like a dog with a bird at your door. Exactly. Think of that. Break down that lyric and how and how gross and unwelcome she's making like love and affection seem. Right. Like she's talking about making out with a guy, but the guy doesn't want her back. Like I love you so much. You couldn't have fucking like just abused someone even any better than you could have with me. Like no one, no one will care about your tongue down a throat more than I will. Like it's such a, it's such an unsexy way of describing like what should be a loving, sexy act. You know, that's really that's really great penmanship. I love that shit so much. Um, yeah, Mood Song may be my favorite track too. Uh, like you, I also like Kyoto and. What you were, um, what I was saying about her being so open, and what you were saying about a lot of these songs really hitting you in the gut right now. I was reading something she said about Kyoto, and it was talking about her time in Japan and just feeling really lonely, and how she likes to wander stores and buy nothing because it just makes her feel less alone. You know, it's very like lost in translation vibes. And then she ends up saying like, "Yeah, I was writing this song, but then I decided like I have enough fucking bummer, depressing songs, so we decided to make it poppy and fun." Like that's that's great, Phoebe. I love Phoebe. Um, yeah, and the songs about her alcoholic father, like reaching out to her, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, like even you know, it cost me a dollar a minute to tell me you're getting sober, and you wrote me a letter, but I don't have to read it. You know, and like those types of things are the the turn of phrases along with the musicality, and especially as someone who's followed her like album to album so far. Like we talked about the end of I I know the end the last song on the album and there's a lot more horn work here and for me like i would be excited for that i'm like oh that's a carryover like that's bright eyes's horns that she's taking over with her and she's building her sound and yeah it, it's very small subtle stuff but uh, to me it's just kind of a, a quiet stunner if you really want to focus in on it and i, I think she's only going to get better and more important and i'm very excited for her career and yeah uh, she's just one of my favorites working right now yeah easily one of my favorite albums of the year so far all right, we're going long, Tom. Once again, we're we're running into that two and a half hour mark. Okay, I'm done. I'm good. You good? Yep. All right. Anything to recommend? We're going to wrap up. You got anything from this week you want to throw out? Shout out? No. Make people go seek out? No. I'm no. Done. Nothing. I'm fucking done. All right. I will throw out one more thing okay. that I checked out this week that I would recommend to everybody. Um. Yeah, both, you know, it's it's both kind of easy stuff to watch, but not easy to, in terms of to access. But 
Um, uh, this week I watched the films of Kalik Allah, who is a New York street photographer and filmmaker. He uh, specializes in Harlem. And uh, many of his films are short films. They're like 15 or 20 minutes, and a lot of them are on YouTube. And they were recently highlighted by the Criterion Collection, so you can see a lot of them on the Criterion channel. And basically what his films are, are he's a street photographer who specializes in photographing the homeless, uh, specifically in his New York films. So he's uh, homeless people, drug addicts, um, the just the people who are out on the street on 125th and Lexington. That's his kind of corner. And... There's one movie in particular, it's 20 minutes long, it's called Urban Rashomon. It's on YouTube, uh, you can watch it very uh, easily, and it was it just uh, was a big slap in the face for me, because we've talked so much about race uh, the last few weeks, and this is a movie about a, a photographer, and you can hear him taking the pictures of these people. You see, it's a kind of a mixture of him taking the pictures and you seeing the pictures he's taken while hearing the audio of him talking to this man who he's taking pictures of, interacting with these drug addicts and these homeless people and stuff. And his goal is to kind of find beauty in all this ugliness. And um, the reason that the movies in particular hit me pretty hard was because they, like I said, they take place on 125th in Lexington. And I used to go to that corner all the time when I lived in New York because the M60 bus uh, to LaGuardia that's where it picks you up at. And I use that. And instead of taking like a $30 cab fare or whatever to the airport, I used to just take the $2 bus fare to the airport constantly. So I was always on that corner, um, multiple times a month and at night sometimes. And I saw so many of those people. And I remember looking down on them and judging them and, uh, being scared of them. And, uh, yeah, just kind of having that, that guard up. And I, in this age of us trying to talk about Black Lives Matter and the different people that we've ignored and paid attention to and looked down on, it was a kind of a as beautiful as I thought the films were for me personally, especially the location in particular that they took place on, really made me reflect on my early years and my fear of homeless people and how like we can just be like, oh, that's gross, and just like want nothing to do with it and have no sympathy towards these people and push them away and put them back in their corners and. I don't know. It kind of sent me on an emotional whirlwind this week, and I would really recommend it. His name's Kalik Allah. That's K-H-A-L-I-K space Allah, A-L-L-A-H. I'd highly recommend any of those films. They're like 15 or 20 minutes. They're, um, there's a couple features that he made, but even those features are like 65 minutes long, and um, they're, they're, they're beautiful. They're incredibly shot. They're very hypnotic. Can't recommend them enough if you're willing to dive into some of that stuff. Cool. I will make sure to... Uh, I'll put the link in the descriptor notes for uh, that one particular title, along with his name, Urban Rashomon, you said, right? Yeah, Urban Rashomon. I'll put, I'll uh, put the YouTube link on there. You know, that that used to be my stop uh, to go to work at uh, Maisel's as well. Yeah, you'll. I think anyone. I, I, it was. It would have been affecting anyway. But for our history, my history on that particular block uh, made it kind of like. I've been that guy who's looked at these people with disgust. It's, you know, it's and, amazing. So you hope most, it happens to most people. It certainly did with me. Once you leave the bubble of your suburbs, um, you know, obviously there's a culture shock when you move to a big city, but you live there long enough. And the, the way you feel about the homeless really changes and hopefully evolves for the better. I know it has with me. So, you know, it's brave of you to admit that, that you had that fear. And I'm glad you no longer feel that way. Well, even just this week, like I, I, LA has a giant homeless problem. Um, sure does. And 
Um, our building in particular is right off of Olympic, which is the main road. And we, the, we have private parking. It's labeled private, but you can get to it from the street. There's not a gate. So sometimes I'll go down to our car in the mornings or something, and there's homeless people kind of sleeping in the corners uh, near our cars. And I think, you know, at first I was kind of like, get the fuck out of here. You know, I had that attitude of like, hey, this is private property. Get the fuck out of here. You're like, you, you bum. And th- But this week I was kind of like, I had those things on my mind, and I went down there and I saw a couple of them some days, and I was just like, you know, they're not bothering me. They're just looking for a place to sleep. Um, it's cooler. It's in the shade um out compared to out in the sun right now and like they're not stealing anything and like i don't give a shit like who am i to yell at this person right now i don't know their struggle exactly and and it even just like that's the value of film for me that's the way it's affected my life is that seeing things like that or these films if you take them in and take them to heart it can really change the way you approach your daily life and just even this week alone the films I've kind of made an immediate impact on me. So I wanted to make sure to recommend them to people. They've, they're beautiful, beautiful films, even though they're kind of documenting some fairly ugly things. Cool. That's great rec. All right. That's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show. It is now available on iTunes, the Google store, Stitcher, and on YouTube. Every one of those reviews or questions or anything you want to send us helps us out tremendously. You can send us an email or a comment at how's that day pod at Gmail. That's all one word. Thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music. Tom, please tell them where to find you. Uh, Bidney, Tom Bidney on Instagram, Big Fat Bond on Twitter. How's that day pod at gmail.com for me and Phil. All right. And you can find me at Phil underscore Weedenheft on Twitter, P Weedenheft on Instagram. And uh, yeah, just look for us there. And you can find all my thoughts throughout the or get daily reviews from me on movies I'm watching on Letterboxd if you use that and want to follow me there. Oh, good call. And yeah. And with that, Tom. I'll see you next week. Have a good day. Love you, everybody. Be safe out there. All right. See you, everyone.